Hey guys, just a quick note before we begin that the show may contain spoilers and adult language, but that's just because we know how to have a good time. Stick around, you'll be glad you did. You are here for me to enlighten you. You ever act like this again, you're barred for life. It's just violent base. It's kind of embarrassing. If you know you're lying, then you can forget them. Oh, I get it. It's very clever. <laughs> Hello, peoples, and welcome to Esoterica Cinema, the podcast where we take films from the cinematic multiverse and discuss the hell out of them. My name is Jason Peters, and with me, as always, is the man who once danced the Macarena in front of Queen Elizabeth herself, Mr. <laughs> Ryan Seabold. What's up, Jason? How's it going, buddy? Awesome, man. I am doing really well here. Uh, we're here to talk movies with my best bud, Ryan. And, you know, I love that the way that Kumaran Beam loves dancing with Aluri Raju. So can't get much better than that. Because today we are looking at RRR. Do you have a description for us, my friend? Oh, buddy, I'm glad we're revisiting this film. Uh, <laughs> for the fans of the show, I covered this in a very, very short episode uh, and Jason had never seen this before, so we're coming back to you with a season premiere for RRR, which might as well be called Ryan, 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 because this movie has my name written all the hell over it. I am <laughs> in love with this film. I'm not the only one. This was embraced worldwide, and we gonna talk about it. Google has this described as a tale of two legendary revolutionaries in their journey far away from home. After their journey, they return home to start fighting back against the British colonialists in the 1920s in India. This was directed by S.S. Rajamuli, and it was made on a budget of about 70 million, made a worldwide box office of 170 mil, uh, most of that from India. I think they clocked in at 130 of that as westernized audiences found this on Netflix to stream. So uh, this clocked in at three hours and seven minutes. This is not a shorty. I know, Jason, you notoriously give me a lot of living hell for uh, not liking long movies, but here we are. Talking about <laughs> 87 minutes, Ryan's preferred <laughs> runtime. 87 right. minutes. Yeah, just give me two episodes of a TV show. <laughs> uh, but yeah, this is uh, definitely one of my favorite longer movies in recent years. There's a lot to love about this. This is a family affair. This was written by his dad, Vijayendra Prasad. Um, it was uh, had music by his cousin, M.M. Cream. Uh, the costumes were by Rama Rajamuli, his wife. And it was shot by Sentil Kamau, uh, which is uh, the eighth film, I think, that they worked on together. So a lot of family nice. love in this. And I think it comes out in Bromance of the Year, RRR. <laughs> uh, this was uh, basically a fictional tale of two Indian revolutionary heroes, uh, Aluri mm -hmm. Sitarama Raju and Kamaram Beam, who supposedly never met in real life, but this was kind of a uh, little fan, fix, if, fan fiction, if you will, of like, what if they did? Um, I kind of look at this as like Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. Um, did Abraham Lincoln fight vampires? I don't think so, but it'd be a lot cooler if he did. And who's to say <laughs> he didn't? I'm not here to tell you he didn't. Maybe he did with an axe. Yeah. So um, yeah, here we are. Well, yeah, and on that note, I was really interested to read that he was actually inspired by Quentin Tarantino to do right. that very thing. So, I saw that. Which, yeah, apparently, uh, so he actually had lists like Django Unchained as like one of his top 10 all-time favorite movies. Mm -hmm. And a large part of that has to do with the fact that it was like the film that opened him up to the idea that like in a fictional story, you can rewrite history, you know? And, and Quentin Tarantino is by no means the first person to 
write historical fiction, right? Yes. Like, I mean, that's that's been a, a literary genre for well over hundreds of years, you know, but uh, obviously he popularized it for some people in cinema. So, yeah, I mean, on. this is uh, this has gone on in movies. You know, he listed movies like Inglorious Bastards as well. Motorcycle Diaries about Che Guevara. Um, and even Braveheart talking about William Wallace, you know, and, yeah. um, who's to know what happened to, to William Wallace in the times when he's in the woods and just hanging out. So, uh, but Mel Gibson said, let's, let's talk about it. And maybe this happened and probably none of it, but it was cool. So <laughs> and he won Oscars. So, um, yeah, anyways, this was, uh, this was a fun movie. It was a big budget action flick. There's a lot of, uh, hyper stylized violence and craziness, but it also had a lot of heart as well, which I think is what yeah. people really attach themselves to and, and, and what separates this film from your average Michael Bay film. Uh, but we're going to talk about all that. Jason, uh, before I get too far into it, though, I got to ask you, as always, my friend, what did you think about this movie? Ryan, I am going to be very happy to tell you. First, do just want to ask our audience, if you haven't, please go ahead and like and subscribe to our videos. And by the way, if you agree or disagree with any part of this review or you want to comment along the way as you're listening, watching, etc., please go ahead and drop some comments in the section below. We'd love to hear from you. We will likely get back to you, let you know what we think as well. So uh, please do engage with us. We'd love to hear from you. So, Ryan, high level. Really enjoyed this movie. Awesome. I really, really enjoyed this movie, which cool. is kind of surprising. So for our audience, uh, I, I've never actually seen an Indian film before. Uh, just flat out have not. Ryan started watching a few of them uh, within the last couple of years for some of the audio podcast episodes that we were doing. Has developed an appreciation for that level of cinema. Has been telling me, dude, you got to check it out. Sky Rajamuli, Bahubali Saga, RRR, et cetera, all this stuff. So, And it's funny because like... Coming into this film, from what I knew of it, there it's it's not something on paper that's going to read like it's up Jason's alley, right? Because it's it's got, like, musical elements, and I'm not really much of a musical guy, though I am starting to come around. I'm wondering if that's kind of changing a little bit, um, because there's been a lot of sort of musicals recently that I have enjoyed. I don't like films with heavy CGI, right? Okay. Uh, I'm not really generally a fan of, like, melodrama, you know? So, like... And that all of those can really describe this film. So I was kind of coming in like, eh, we'll see what happens here. And yeah, I, I ended up really, really enjoying it. And I think a large part of it is, you know, there are certain films where you can't help but appreciate the passion in which they are made, right? Like, right. there's just some films where you can tell, like, oh, these people loved making this movie, right? Like, this was a work of passion. And that's generally where I find that works that may not necessarily be right up my alley, that I tend to respond to them positively. And I get that sense when watching this movie, right? Like, that, like, Raja Muli was so stoked to make this movie. You know, he loved the, the music and the dancing that was in there. Uh, just the earnestness of like the bro the bromance between these right. two characters <laughs> yeah. is like it's so charming. Like you just you can't. They, I mean, it's literally there are scenes where it's like the uh, you know uh, raindrops keep falling on my head sequences from like <laughs> Butch Cassidy and stuff where they're just like they might as well be skipping arm in arm through like fields of lilies and stuff like that. Like the shot. Right after they, uh, you know, save the kid and embrace arms where they're like running towards each other underwater. Like, yes. so, it's just it's so innocent and sweet. And it's the type of thing that, like, if you were going to be cynical about, you could definitely sort of like make fun of or look at in a negative light. And I also wonder if like younger Jason might have been that way. Right. Sure. But 
there's, you know, now being a little bit older and just sort of like appreciating just genuine compassion and brotherly love, especially, you know, that's not something that we see here a lot in the States, right? Like we're not necessarily as open just as a culture, you know, when it comes to expressions of brotherly love and things of that nature. So when you see these very just sort of like pure expressions of that, right. I think it goes a little bit longer or a little bit farther for, well, for and especially like us, in know? an action film of this caliber where it's like mostly based on heavy action sequences, like saving the kid or, you know, gunfighting or, you know, fighting in the woods or fighting a bear or a tiger, or whatever it is, um, to see any kind of like emotion amongst, you know, usually we're, we're used to seeing Vin Diesel or The Rock or whatever. And as much as Vin Diesel wants to talk about family, he's usually doing it in a very gruff way, not giving um, yeah. Tyrese uh, a piggyback ride after a dance contest. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> so, absolutely. Yeah. If you're so out there, Vin, and you're watching, more piggyback rides in your movies, man. <laughs> We need that. We need to see the family dynamic. Yeah. See, we want to see that with him and The Rock, but the problem is that, like, neither of them can decide, like, who gets to be the one carrying the other one, right? <laughs> who's top and, and who's bottom. And then they just get this, like, chip. Yeah, exactly. Hey, man, they get we've all been there. shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> Now, I did want to ask you, Ryan, because obviously, as you mentioned, like you have seen this movie before. Yes. So and it was fairly recent, too. It wasn't like years ago that you saw this or anything. So how was it a second time around? Was it just as enjoyable, more or less? How was it for you? Um, More enjoyable, I will say. Yeah. Because the first time I went into this, I went into it totally blind. I had not. I don't think I'd even seen a trailer for it. I think I just went because uh, if you go back and listen to the episode, um, I was shocked at how long it was because I didn't even know the runtime until after I was like 10 minutes in and I went to go check it. I think it was like 11 at night or something. And I was like, oh shit, like I just totally tanked myself. So um, <laughs> yeah, this one, I was I knew what I was going into and it allowed me to appreciate, especially with this being a full length episode, now I could go in and appreciate more of the nuance of what they were showing me, kind of do a little bit more of a deep dive. Um, and because I knew the plot and how it resolved, um, now I could kind of focus in on some more of the details, um, but both yeah. technically, narratively, uh, emotionally, and all those things. So, uh, yeah, I think this second go round, there, there's just this movie is so sensory overloaded, uh, sensorily, oh, sensorily, <laughs> whatever. Um, there's a lot. It's lot for the eyeballs. <laughs> lot for the eyeballs. Lot for the ear holes. Um, I also just humble brag upgraded uh, to 4K in my theater room. So um, 4K, <laughs> 4K projector, 4K uh, stream. So uh, it looks so beautiful nice. and vibrant um, in, in yeah. its 4K uh, format. And the music and all of that is just so loud and overwhelming. It's really powerful. So um, little things like um, how fire and water are represented um, sure. for ROM yeah. and Beam, uh, respectively throughout the film that I missed because I didn't really get that that was kind of a narrative tool that he was using. So as Ram is um, Raja Ram, I think is uh, the character's name, if I'm not mistaken, um, as Raju is, is being uh, showcased throughout, like there was like a, a, a wheel, a tire that had like come off and it was on fire and like, but he's yeah. like walking down the street. So, and he's in the middle of this tire that's like following him along and he's like kind of, you know, framed with this fiery tire so little things like that is like oh yeah the fire got it you know i missed that on the first go around so uh, there's a lot of nuance and detail uh throughout definitely yeah well i'll tell you what man so uh this is a long form episode so by the way 
Uh, for everybody that's joining us here, uh, you will notice if you've seen maybe some of our videos out there, they are a little bit on the shorter side, which <laughs> at least for us, they're like 30 to 40 minutes, which is probably hugely yeah. long for everyone. But <laughs> if you think that's long, buckle in, folks. This is going to be uh, two hours probably plus. So Grab a we snack. have some short. Yeah. So we'll have our short form episodes that will be one thing and we'll have long form episodes like this where we're really going to get into the meat and potatoes. We're going to actually look at all of the aspects of cinema, right? We're going to look at the sound design, the score, the cinematography, the plot lines, the screenplay, the direction, all of this. And we're going to sort of take you through the movie from beginning to end, not for every scene, because obviously it's a huge movie. We don't have quite that much time here, but we're going to use the movies and its narrative structure as a sort of a skeleton for us to work from and sort of go through the film. So uh, hopefully you'll be along for the ride. Like I said, if you're really into cinema and some deep dive discussions, we're really going to get into it here. And Ryan, I could say we would uh, go ahead and start, but I, I just need a good place for us to start. Oh, buddy. It's been a long time since I've been able to tell you this, <laughs> but I'm coming back to you to tell you we could start where we always do, at the beginning. Yes, at the beginning. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Little catchphrase from the audio podcast for any of our longtime listeners there. So at the beginning of RRR, which, by the way, I have to say. Yes, here the, it comes. The, <laughs> yes, title, talk about it. Tell me. <laughs> the title could roll off the tongue a little bit better, right? Because inevitably, one of two things ends up happening when I mention it. Either I kind of slur it because I'm like, RRR, right? Or, as happens all the time, I think to myself, I sound like a goddamn seal. Or, or, or. Every freaking time, dude. Every freaking time. R R R. Like it, that's how that comes out. That's so. Um, I do appreciate that. Uh, apparently, it was a reference to the three of them, right? It uh, was Rajamuli and the other two actors, and then they, from what I understand, they like crowdsourced what the title should actually refer to, and then Rise, Roar, and Revolt was the one that like ended up winning. Yeah, and like they have multiple different language versions of the RRR acronym. So in Telugu, it's like something else. In Hindi, it's something else. But it always comes back to three R words. Uh, and in English, for us westernized uh, adults, it is rise, roar, revolt. Right? Is yeah. that it? Yes, yes. That rise, is roar, it. revolt. Ryan, Ryan, Ryan. <laughs> That's how I like to remember it. So, yes. But yeah. I, um, I, just, call it, I just call it the SEAL movie now. Or, 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 yeah, the, uh, <laughs> um, the, the, uh, actors over there are extremely famous and very well known yeah. and a huge, uh, cinematic draw so much so that, uh, they were stated as saying that the only reason they haven't been in movies together before this is because the studio couldn't afford them. So, uh, both at the same time, cause they have such a large paycheck. So yeah, um, that the, one of the main draws is that it's, it's these two guys in a movie together. And directed by Raja Mooley, who is also seen as a titan in his industry over there as well, like a James Cameron of sorts. So, um, yeah, good stuff. But what I was hoping you were going to talk about is the studio intro for Penn Studios and how <laughs> freaking epic <laughs> of an intro was. that was. I thought we were starting yes, the movie indeed. when I first saw it. And it was like, yeah. oh, God, this is awesome. And then it was just like Penn Studios. And I was like, 
oh shit, that, that's just the studio intro. I cannot wait to see <laughs> what this movie has in, in store. So yeah, good on the, like T two thousand studio executive that sort of like morphs from liquid nitrogen into like a person and then right. there's like fireworks and sweeping all this stuff. Yeah, so it's like. And then, and then I also think it's hysterical because the immediately the title card afterward is like the most generic like India film production <laughs> like just right. text against like a entirely black screen or something like yes. that came from like nineteen dickety six or whatever but right. Uh, yeah, so, but then after those studio cards, we get some, like, really dramatic music and sound design that really works. The speakers and headphones kind of gives you a treat to what you're going to expect here. We open on a young girl who's singing a very beautiful song as she sits among her people. And soon an English couple comes in, takes her away. They think that uh, they leave her a few pounds and the, the people think that they're paying her for her song. But actually, uh, they're kidnapping her for reasons which, if we're being honest, never really come to light. Like, <laughs> they could have any kid and they were just kind of like, oh, we want that. But then, like, there's really never really explored. They don't really seem to be doing anything with her. Like, you know, so uh, but obviously this is a film with very clearly delineated lines of like good and bad. And we're not here to sure. like explore morally complex ideals or things like they that, have you know? her so, um, doing the like the tattooing on the hand and stuff um, because she's doing that to the woman in the village and then and then she's singing this beautiful song and she's basically like oh the, basically they're treating her as entertainment or or a pet of sorts you sure. know we could yeah, wheel yeah. this out uh, to our westernized visitors and uh, you know showcase some of the local fare if you will um, it'd be like taking a uh, you know, the best um, Indian food, you know, oh, this curry is delicious. Fucking take the, we're taking the chef home with us. You know, it's like, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that, that's kind of the well, way and I it's also it. just, yeah, you know, and, and also, like I said, you know, part of this film is that it's not again, like a, it doesn't have complicated emotions. It's not like, you know, who's good and who's bad. Like it, right. it's very clear. Like the good guys are really good and they're always good. And the bad guys are really bad and they're always bad. So and always it's white really just and always English. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's really just establishing the English crown good. as like these evil bad guys. It's they're basically treated like the way that like most people treat Nazis in films, sure. right? Just these evil dudes that are there to do evil and nothing more. Right. So we see that and we get that by the you know early scene where dismayed the Indian woman comes out and chases after the child and the soldier is going to shoot her in the head. And then the governor, the evil governor comes out and gives the whole speech about how the Indian's life isn't worth the one pound that the bullet cost to manufacture and send across here. So, again, you know, very clearly delineated lines of good versus bad. Which and real quick, by the way, to touch on that. Um, let's not forget that this takes place in the 1920s. So just to give a little bit of perspective, um, in a previous episode, not long ago, we just talked about Dunkirk, which would have been in the early 1940s. So, um, this is only 20 years before that. And, uh, you know, in a movie like Dunkirk, where it's again, so delineated that the British were these good guys that were trying to go, um, you know, free the French and take on Hitler and all these things that good guys do uh, in the war, uh, you know, then we deal with this. And it's a stark reminder that, you know, the, the world isn't always so black and white sometimes because even just 20 years prior um, and, and even through, you know, World War II, you know, you're talking about the British Empire and their their colonization of, you know, various other countries. So I thought it yeah. was interesting, just historically speaking, to remember that, you know, the window of time, you know, we're talking about 20 years. So what is that? 2000, you know, the year 2000 to now is the difference in time between this and Dunkirk. If you want to like put it in context, kind of weird when you think of it that way. 
Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, man. Now, I will say that the film does a really good job of setting up the overall story and conflict, as well as the aesthetic, right, with just between the pacing, the editing, the cinematography. It's kind of showing us what it is very early on. But the one aspect I think that jumped out initially, among many other things, is the sound design and the score. Oh, yeah, buddy. So for those who are joining us for the first time and maybe don't really know too much about uh, my dear co-host, Mr. Ryan Siebold, he is a sound guy. He makes his living recording sound for various entities and so very knowledgeable about this sort of thing so being a sound guy ryan i thought it would be a good place for us to start with so what did you think about the overall sound design and score and then how did that inform the film in your opinion well there's a lot going on it's a long film and a lot of sound design but i will say for starters um turn this up Listen to this on the biggest set of speakers you got because there's a lot to enjoy. It's very rich. or headphones. I will say that like I actually listen with uh, these very beats oh, headphones sweet. that you're seeing on me right now. Good call. And yeah, they've got really good spatial audio. So yeah, so it's like it's you know you can hear right off the bat. You know, it's like starting from left and panning to right and going sure. up and down and just working all of the different elements. So like yeah, either kick ass sound system, but also really good set of headphones is an awesome experience too. As I mentioned right up top, this was uh, composed. The music was all composed by. Uh, the director, S.S. Rajamuli's cousin, M.M. Cream. Mm -hmm. So um, I guess they use a lot of initials over there. Uh, I, for starters, let me just go ahead and uh, give the, the standard disclaimer that we always give on this show, which is <laughs> Jason and I are westernized idiots. Uh, we admit that. We do our best. Um, if I mispronounce any of the names in this film or uh, misrepresent any uh, foreign cultures, it's I have nothing but respect for everyone that was involved in this film. I know Jason does as well. So uh, just be mm -hmm. patient with us. We're, we're trying to work through it and be better. But yes, this was uh, <laughs> composed by M.M. Cream, uh, which is short for a very long name. So um, but it was so dynamic and so full of emotion. I will say that the songs deliver lyrics almost like um, uh, a Greek chorus where they're kind of filling in some narrative stuff along the way. Um, so, yeah, I noticed that. Yeah, yeah. If you read the lyrics um, in the subtitles uh, or, or, you know, uh, in the closed captions or whatever, then, yeah, you, you pick up a lot that's going on narratively. There's a lot of um, subtext or, you know, set up for a tee up for things that happen later in the film as well. Um, one thing I did notice on this viewing that I don't think I noticed in the original watch is that uh, it's my understanding that this was filmed in uh, the Telugu language. Um, and but it was dubbed and streamed on Netflix in Hindi. So I, okay. I do think that they're very similar languages. And then, of course, all the British occupiers um, slash bad dudes are speaking English. So you do have that uh, as a but, but when you go to our main characters or anything that's happening in India, um, there are some weird juxtapositions between what they're saying visually with their lips and the dubbing that comes across because it was dubbed in Hindi. Um, by the original talent. So, you know, you're getting their actual voices. But sure. um, yeah, I, I do think there are some subtle differences between um, what they're actually saying on film. Namely, you, you notice yeah. it most if you go back and watch the Telugu version of the dance sequence, the Natu Natu, they pronounce it mm -hmm. as Natu Natu, which I guess means something along the lines of rural or country. Um, but uh, in, in the Hindi, it comes out more like Nacho Nacho. Um, which yeah. just made me so hungry. <laughs> I wanted some nachos <laughs> so bad, but yeah, uh, there are some. I actually heard things. that it uh, translates to dance. The, oh, okay. The, the song just means dance, dance. Got it in in English. Um, but I could be mistaken about that. 
If anybody watching knows, drop it in the comments. Hey, I'm going to pimp that out all the <laughs> That's time. Fair. Guys, just get used to that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so yeah, I agree. You know, the, the, you've, it is interesting because you don't always get the same person who does the score and the soundtrack, right? Sure. Generally, you would have one person doing the score and then you would bring in other people to do like the songs, right? Like mm-hmm. Disney does that all the time or right. they did back in the day, right? Alan Menken so, and all of that, correct. Yeah, exactly. You know, so to have this guy do both of them, I thought was really, really impressive because both of them work. I think that uh, I thought that you you would appreciate this if in case you didn't see. But his primary inspiration when it comes to his scoring composition is John Williams. I'm sure so many people would say that. Right. But uh, I know you're a huge John Williams fan. And I think that, yeah, in that same tradition, it's a very sort of classical style that he employs. Right. Like. He could totally do mainstream Hollywood scores, right? Like for all the big summer blockbuster action movies, which is, you know, this is essentially what that is, right? It's a, it's a crowd-pleasing film. It's big. It's a blockbuster, most expensive film ever produced in, in India, from my understanding. Right. So, you know, it, it makes sense that the score is going to reflect that. But then also, you know, it features these songs and these musical sequences, which obviously is something that... Western films would like never, ever do. And the fact that we're actually getting the weird superhero twisted thriller version of that in the Joker sequel, like I can't wait to see what they do yeah, with that. I'm because excited we about just that don't too. approach material like that out sure. here, you know? So it's really interesting to see because I think that if a lot of Western filmmakers tried to do that, like it kind of would seem a little awkward and ham fisted and maybe not organic. Right. Because it's just not in our DNA to, to do that. But, yeah. you know, I would imagine that it's probably fairly common in Indian cinema. Again, this is my first Indian film, so I have to make a lot of so just, you know, imagine kind of based on this film. But so I don't Did know. Did you like the music? Are... Yeah, no, I love the music. It was great. Like I said, the score was was very reflective of just that traditional, again, big, epic John Williams type of feel, you know, when they're. Uh, on the bridge and they're saving the kid and the fire and the flames and everything. And, you know, you've just got the, the high energy music. And then, you know, you also have these really sort of, you know, sweet tender moments, right. That come out throughout different parts of the film. Like the song that beam ends up singing, right. When he's th- during the whole whipping scene and oh, stuff, yeah. right? like that's like a really right. like pretty song and it's powerful. And I especially though. imagine too. Yeah. And I'm sure because we're not really familiar with these actors. Right. But like, I was just thinking like, imagine if somebody, like Jason Momoa or The Rock played this role, right? right? Like that's probably the equivalent for because my understanding is that him specifically he's like a big action star, that actor. Yes. Whereas I think the other guy appears in like in in a number of different movies. I think the other dude is like just which makes sense cuz he's super jacked and like I mean he should be an action hero. He damn well looks like it, right? Right. So, I think the fact, you know, having him do this very emotional dramatic song probably adds a lot of weight to that experience um again it just reminded me like if jason momo had a sequence like that just this big huge hulk of a man being very emotionally vulnerable you don't see that a lot and so the fact that he was able to do these compositions in a way that like i said if we tried to do it it would probably come off cheesy but the earnestness of which everybody approaches this i think really sells the film so it's nice you know Yeah, Yeah. the only comparison that I could kind of come up with for the way the music kind of like intertwined itself with the narrative would be Baz Luhrmann uh, does that very well. Okay. I have not seen Elvis yet. Uh, That's on my list of things to watch. But, um, you know, going back to even Romeo and Juliet with DiCaprio and 
Kate Winslet yeah. and all the you know star power that that had in it. Uh, but then to you know use music narratively throughout. Now um, a lot of those songs were regurgitated from other versions of the songs and stuff, like When Doves Cry and stuff like that. But um, you know, Great yeah. Gatsby or um, Moulin Rouge, of course. Uh, so you know, these are you know big epic sweeping crazy dramas with tons of visual uh, expression, but then, you know, are grounded in these, you know, very, very crazy scores. And so, you know, this mm. kind of had that element to it as well. Um, but also, you know, a lot of early Michael Bay, you know, this kind of feels almost like uh, the first bad boys, you know, with Will Smith and Martin Lawrence, how it was his yeah. buddy team up, huge action sequences, explosions everywhere. Um, but it had a lot of heart, you know, uh, it was grounded in, in the relationships and the narrative. So it never felt cheesy or cheap because of that like yeah. well we'll just blow it up and you know it'll be cool people will love it <laughs> i mean they do kind of do that to a degree well yeah that too like... yeah it's both that's what i love is yeah. i get both out of this <laughs> yeah so it's uh it's funny too because like i don't know that we've really talked about this on the show so for everybody watching like i when it comes to visuals I have sort of like a, a guilty pleasure when it comes to like colored gels, right? Ryan likes to to bust my balls about that sometimes and how <laughs> just all unmotivated lighting, right? Which we're kind of, it's it's like a, it's an aesthetic right now and a lot of like the A24 type stuff. So like sure. I'm really enjoying that. Uh, we're getting a lot of that. I'm sure it's going to be overused in probably five seconds by the time this video releases because we're like right there. But in the same fashion, the reason I bring it up is because the, the, the sound version of colored gels for me is just like random low rattling droning tones. And so this film does that in like many respects where like it's almost like a like a a bassy predator click, right? Mm -hmm. And it'll just kind of like cascade from one side to the other. And and it's not diegetic in any respect. Like it's not there to reflect any sort of thing that's happening on screen. It just sounds freaking cool. And yeah. so like I love that I love that this film is like, to your point, a combination of that, a combination of like, let's make this like grand sweeping epic, right? Like uh, almost like a really good sort of Michael Bay movie, right? Like just in because it's a traditional Hollywood action oriented uh, epic, um, but then also just do a bunch of cool random shit that we that we like just because it's cool and we dig it, right? Like right. there's no reason to put musical sequences in that film, but they're like. Don't care. Doing it. It is awesome. <laughs> if, so, if, if Michael Bay design. made Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah, that's what. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't think Michael Bay and David Lean, you could split that difference. But hey, here we are. Here we Props are. to you, Mr. Rajamouli. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is firing on all cylinders. It's visual. It's audible. I mean, it's just, it's it's emotional. Um, it's a, a narrative tale of good versus evil that I think everybody can relate to. Uh, persecution. Um, it's a very tangible narrative structure of like, you know, this good, this bad and the yeah. bad narratively. And I'm sure we'll, we'll discuss here shortly, but um, it's, it's so bad. Like he doesn't shy away from how bad. And so, you know, you'll see a woman get hit in the head with a log very hard and, you know, killed or, or knocked out. So, um, you know, uh, the, the level of abuse and persecution and all of that makes you very easily emotion, uh, emotionally connected to the good, you know, because you see that the, the counterbalance very clear cut. Yeah, absolutely, man. So real quick, this is actually a good time for this. I did want to bring this up because I'm going to make a comparison here, but like, uh, so b b prior to the show, I actually shared with Ryan an article I found that lists SS Rajamuli's 10 
best films of all time, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not going to read the entire list to you, uh, but of that, go ahead, if you want, go ahead and find it online, right? Um, it's it's a fantastic list. But what I will say is that Raja Wooly has three animated films on his list of like the 10 best films of all time, right? One of them is The Lion King. Uh, one of them is Aladdin, which is the entire reason that I bring this up, because I think there are so many comparisons to Aladdin that you can make with this film from some of the musical sequences. I feel like the emotion of the character of Kumaran Beam is actually like very closely modeled to um, the uh, our main character in Aladdin. Right. Uh, you've got just like this, like purely evil governor. That's very much like purely evil Jafar. Right. There's these sort of like melodramatic things about, you know, family and double crossing and finding that out and all that sort of stuff. So and acting uh, really, like someone that he's not, you know, he's a street rat that then comes in and acts yeah. like he's something else and his cover is blown. And then he's got to redeem himself from that as well. So, yeah. And it turns out at the end that he's like this, like actually like huge prince or whatever it is. Right. But, and then just because it's, it's so wonderful that this is the case. One of his, one of Rajmuli's top 10 films of all time, best of cinema to ever exist in the history of cinema Kung Fu Panda. He lists Kung Fu Panda as one of the best films ever made, ever made. (laughs) I don't think there's a Kubrick film on his list at all. And he's like, 2001? Nope. Kung Fu Panda, bro. And I love that. And I love that. And I think that's why, that's why this film works, right? Because like, he's obviously a very just open, like innocent in terms of like what he likes. And, you know, that comes through in this film. So like, if you if if when it comes out that the guy that made this film, like one of his favorite films is Aladdin, you're like, oh, yeah, totally makes sense. Right? Totally get it. Yeah. And just cartoons <laughs> in general, because a lot of the things that are happening in here are not afraid to be a little Acme. You know what I mean? Like you get some Wiley e. Coyote dynamite blows up in the face kind of moments throughout. So yeah. I think that that makes it fun. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, the next sequence introduces us to our protagonists. Hey, we told you we were going to be long winded, right? (laughs) 35 (laughs) minutes and here we go. Introducing our protagonist. Page one. Um, (laughs) (laughs) With the prologue out of the way, the story can begin. (laughs) Now, our next sequence introduces us to our protagonist. The first is Aluri Raju, played by Ram Sharan, who, again, is one of India's most popular and expensive actors, as Ryan noted. He plays an Indian man who is seemingly defected to the British army. The embassy that he stands guard at, it's it's like heavily surrounded by like masses of people. We're getting like rocks thrown at him and then a rock hits the picture of like the queen, I believe it is. And then the men are ordered, the soldiers they are, to find and punish the person responsible. At that point, Raju leaps over the fence in a very superhero style and becomes a one-man army where he just goes on like a wrecking crew through these mobs of people. We get some really fantastic and epic action sequences, but also some claustrophobic sequences too. So there's like two parts of this particular battle that really stood out. The first is when they're driven to the top of the rocks and then like each of them starts like hitting down and like, yeah, same thing with the sound design, like the crunch of those people hitting the ground. You're like, oh, that hurts, right? Right. Like you can really feel that. It's, It's very kinetic and vibrant in that way. And then the other would be the sequences where there's like mobs of people around him. He's in this like cocoon of people and they end up, you know, getting what must've been like 30 people basically to make almost like this, uh, a dog pile small pyramid of sorts. Yeah. A dog pile, but with enough space for the camera and the actors to be inside right. and like shoot an action fight, like a, like a fist fight. 
And that's really cool. Honestly, I was tr- I was trying to think if I had ever seen that scene. Yeah, like filmed me too. that way in a movie before. And I don't believe I have. And that's I don't really believe awesome. I have either. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's um, it's the first time that I've seen the camera go underneath like a fight like that and see yeah. realistically or as realistically as you can portray it, how you would in fact get out of that situation. And the answer is one at a time. <laughs> I'm going to break <laughs> your hand because it's around my throat. I'm going to poke this guy in the eye because he's behind my back choking me out. Um, and then I'm just going to go through this and, and demolish these people one by one. Um, because if you're subdued by call it 20 people or 30 people in a crowd of hundreds, if not thousands. And by the way, that was also cool is Raja Muli's use of wide shots to show the scope of it all. Yeah. Um, he's never afraid to zoom way the hell out and show like this guy is a speck in the crowd of thousands um, that are all that he's got to manipulate maneuver his way through. But yeah, it's just, I'm going to go through this one by one and get rid of you guys. uh, So that's, you know, what's the threat that's right in front of me. And then also like what you said, um, showing you from his point of view, you know, looking to kind of plot his next move. You feel like you're in that moment. He did such a good job putting you in those shoes to kind of, because it's all happening very fast as fights tend to do. So it's like, he doesn't lose the adrenaline and and the energy of the scene, but he also gives you good context and allows you to be a part of it versus just this blur flurry of Paul Greengrass style, you know, whip pans and snap zooms and, you know, all this stuff that feels (laughs) very energetic and cool and has a lot of adrenaline in it. But you also lose the perspective or feel like you're a part of it in in any way. Even so much so, and I'm sure you're going to talk about this, but his use of slow motion um, moving forward in Mm -hmm. some of the action sequences. Maybe not necessarily this one in particular, but uh, there are several in the future that he's able to slow down those action moments and um, let you really take in what's happening on screen and, um, and then speeds it right back up again. A lot of ramping uh, they call it in film. So yeah, man, I I thought that, uh, that this was, this was the moment that uh, on, on first watch that I was like, okay, I'm all in for this. Like I knew this was my kind of movie. Yeah. So and then after that, we meet our other protagonist. That is Komaram Beam, who is also going to be referred to as Akhtar in the first half Mm -hmm. because he's sort of undercover. And we see him. We're introduced to him when he's like standing in the jungle. We get this really awesome shot. It's this sort of like push in that flies over water. I think it starts upside down and pushes in and then kind of like comes around and he, you know, sort of turns around to the camera or something like that. And he's just this massive hulk of a man. Right. And he he pours blood over himself and he waits. It turns out that he's setting this trap and ends up being chased by a wolf through the jungle. And like I said, my, my immediate reaction is like. This dude looks like a superhero, right? Like running through the jungle. Yeah. And he's got these like massive tree trunk legs in addition to, you know, obviously like the upper body strength. And so when I found out later that he was indeed an action hero star in his native India, it made a lot of sense. It's right? an easy um, sell. He absolutely <laughs> should be. But the funniest thing, the funniest thing that I thought, though, is like when he was wearing normal clothes, he somehow like looked schlubby. 
Yeah, it was the bit. weirdest thing. Like he was like he's like the Indian groundskeeper Willie, where like <laughs> he's just in his tunic and you think nothing of him, and then he's like, "Let me at him!" and like tears it open, and he's just absolutely shredded and oh, jacked. Yeah. And it was like, oh my god, because even um, uh, the other actor uh, Raj, uh, when you know he's got his very angular, chiseled jaw, right? right. And so. Um, you know, his physique, even when he's just wearing like, you know, a regular shirt or whatever, you can see it. But there's something about the other dude's face where it's like, yeah, man, like he just again, he looks like a schlubby accountant until he tears his clothes off. And then he's a jacked superhero. He's well, he's got a very round Clark face. Kent Superman. Like I do, you know, I have the same thing. <laughs> uh, so he's got a very round face. But I don't look like that when I take my shirt off. He like, yeah, dude's be- yeah. a beast. But at least yeah. they introduce you to that right out the gate. So it doesn't it does not have the groundskeeper Willie take on it because the first time you see him, like you said, yeah, he's in the exactly. jungle with his shirt off and just like ready to go pouring blood on his face, fighting a fucking tiger and the whole thing. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And as he's chased by this tiger, you know, he's running through the jungle and then he ends up being flanked by a tiger that jumps out. And that leads him into, uh, he sort of leads the tiger into this netted trap which, by the way, if you if you have Netflix, this is the scene that they like have on like the auto preview or whatever. Okay, but it's uh, the 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 trap falls down, and you know it looks like we have the tiger, but then the track breaks, and then you know Bean's like looking at him, and then he like screams, and he like, uh, but then it breaks again, and so. I wasn't exactly sure what this was, but he's being chased and he seems to like grab some sort of fruit or vegetable or some sort of organic matter that has like a tranquilizer property or something because he throws it at the tiger and it, it, you know, it it chases him down and wrestles him for a minute, but then the tiger ends up becoming unconscious. So uh, I'm not a hundred percent sure what that was. I don't know. Do you want me to explain it? Please. Yeah, that'd be great. Because uh, this was something I did not notice on my first watch, and I noticed it on my second watch. And I was like, ah, okay. Um, because not much longer after this, after the two of these dudes meet um, and they start palling around town, you'll see that Homeboy's got two Fred Flintstone-sized chunks of meat on his shoulder, and he's, like, walking through town. And he gets, oh, yeah. Uh-huh. And, he's like, and he has to duck out from the other guy so he's not seen or whatever. And then you see him shove these fucking huge things into a doorway hole. And then he's like, eat, eat up my, my precious. I'm just going to, you know, take you for my own purposes or whatever. He's feeding that to the, to the tiger. And then because later when they attack the palace, remember, they've got that whole menagerie of vicious animals that the truck yeah. comes to a skids, you know, uh, you know, does a, a full slide power slide into and all those cages open mm-hmm. up and one of those is the fucking tiger. So yeah, apparently he's been imprisoning these vicious animals as a mean of means of weaponization towards, you know, this was their plan of attack. He's like, okay, I'll, I'll, you, yeah. I'll, I'll subdue these things, tranquilize them, keep them, uh, you know, healthy. And then when the time comes, I'll set them loose uh, as allies to cause chaos so that I can go save my, 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 my homie, uh, Molly. Sure. Yeah. No. And I, and I did appreciate that. Um, I did, I did recognize that. Too. Okay. I maybe thought that, that, I, I thought that I, was I a really clever thing. No, 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 it's fine. It's just, but it, to your point, I did think that was a very clever thing that the film did because when he says, you know, I'm sorry, I'm taking you because I need you after right. he catches the tiger, you assume that means they're going to eat them. That's it's what a I sort thought. Of very, you know, reverential native American sort of approach Correct. to that. And then, yeah, later on when you find out that like, there's that big scene at the party where all the animals are loose. But I, I was just specifically saying as far as like the, that matter that he throws, that vegetable, that fruit, that whatever oh, right. it is. Like, I have no clue what that is. Like, no uh, perhaps in India, again, 
again, if any of our Indian viewers, if, if you know what that is, like perhaps it's something that's very well known in India. There's some sort of native fruit or vegetable that has yeah. tranquilizer properties because we just don't have anything like that here. Like, so I have no idea. So my point is, I have no idea what he threw at the tiger, but he threw something that some made kind of herbal chloroform. Asleep. Right. Knocked yeah, him the fuck exactly. Because <laughs> it happened. So, fast. Yeah, so whatever it was, knocked that tiger out really quick. So. But yeah, you know, Ryan, if nothing else, you know, these introductions to our protagonist, uh, if they teach us nothing else, it's that this is going to be an action film through and through, though there are also these other elements of it, right? Uh, but it's first and foremost an action film. Right. So that's kind of what I wanted to ask you as well, is obviously going to be a lot to talk about here, but what was your response to all the various action scenes and how large they were and maybe even some of your favorite ones? So I actually did some research on this because... You know, as always on this show, the task at hand, I think, for us is not to just say, oh, I liked it or didn't like it, but why? Yeah. And ask ourselves, Correct. you know, do some soul searching on why. Like, what makes this different from, you know, some of the other action scenes that we see throughout cinema history? And what made this stand sure. out? Why was I so emotionally attached? And so I did some research on this. And apparently, Rajamuli treats his action sequences like short films. They all have... Uh, very often three act structures. So you'll oftentimes will get a, a premise set up of what is he after? What's the MacGuffin that they're after? So for example, on the bridge sequence that we're going to get to here yeah, shortly, I was thinking about that right now, they're going to save the child. Um, so you, you've got a tangible MacGuffin of what they're after. You've got mm -hmm. uh, a bit of a, um, uh, all is lost moment at the end of an act two where it's like, you know, everything looks like shit. You get some redemption, you get uh, character turns and stuff like that. So, you know, he puts these little emotional beats throughout, um, throughout the action sequences. So it's not just a foray of fists and blood. Um, you're actually watching things happen narratively that are impacting your character. You get those all is lost moments. And it's like, you know, every one of these action scenes have that when you really start to break it down narratively, which is really interesting. It allows you to, sure. again, be emotionally invested in what's happening versus just watching something from the outside looking in this fist of fury thing. I mean, even in the opening sequence that you mentioned earlier about the hordes of people that were jumping on uh, our character and he had to fight his way out. He's going after a guy that threw a rock. Uh, and broke um, a picture, I guess, of the prime minister or something like that. Uh, and he's like, go get that man, arrest that man. So now that man yeah. now becomes the MacGuffin. And we're shown throughout that action sequence. He didn't just jump in there to beat some ass. He's going to get that guy and pull him in for justice. So, you know, throughout that. Well, also got, specifically because he wants to be like promoted to special officer. Correct. That's and, his whole motivation. Right. That's his we find that out later. Yeah. Thing. yeah. Right. But, you know, just that. There's, you know, purpose and emotional beats and stuff like that intertwined throughout the action sequence. And then, you know, uh, with the score and stuff like that. Um, also, again, uh, the size and scope of it all. For, so, again, going back to that opening sequence of the dog pile scene uh, in the beginning, um, you know, he showed several wide shots. I mentioned this earlier, almost like it was shot with a drone of the crowd. So you could see how, you know, yeah. big of a pile this guy was in. And they shot that uh in segments with plates. So they would shoot them 100 people at a time for this slice of the screen frame and then move everybody mm. over and shoot it again and move everybody over and shoot it again so that makes sense. They would enhance it uh with CGI like the Battle of Helm's Deep from the Two Towers, but at its core those are all real people milling about. And so it gives you uh, more of a realistic, grounded 
view of what this guy is in the middle of. It doesn't feel so fake and computer generated. Now there's tons of CG yeah. in this movie. Of course, CGI yeah. tiger, CGI, lots of things, um, lots of fire. But again, they tried to shoot practical and miniatures as much as humanly possible. It's, if you go online, there's uh, several featurettes, online featurettes that kind of showcase that, um, like the train uh, coming over the bridge and all of that. They shot all that uh, in miniature or um, full-size miniature scale or whatever. It's a, it's a very large train, but obviously shrunk it down a little bit. But yeah, it gives you uh, more of a grounded, tangible uh, feel for it. So um, it doesn't feel so fake. Yeah. And, you know, I think that when you're talking about the action sequences, that's, you know, one of the huge selling features of this film, right? And it fits in because this is just a big movie, right? Everything here is big, sure. big, 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 big set pieces, right? big dudes, big crowds, big explosions, big dance sequences, big everything, right? It, it, it's, a, it's like the Texas of Indian films. Everything is bigger, <laughs> right? Like, Yes. It's how can I crank this and, to 11? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know? And I love both of the character introductions and, again, you know, the scene where they meet saving the kid and, you know, they they go over the side of the bridge and embrace arms together and introduce each other, right? Like, it's it's all, uh, even, you know, the breaking into the party, right, where they, you, you mentioned it, they unleash all the animals and, like, everything's just massive chaos, right? right. Which, by the way, uh, one, of the, one of my favorite shots or series of shots is is in that fight. It's to your point earlier when they're doing the fire and water. The fire and the, the water. juxtaposition. Yeah. Right. And they show And they show Raju and he's got like all these flames around him and everything and he's advancing and then they show uh, Komaram uh, and uh, he's got like the, the fountain has like been uh, basically destroyed but all of like the, the hoses are sort of like waving around back and forth with like water spurting yeah, everywhere around almost like a hydra him. or something you know i yeah, think they even exactly. have their 100 fountain facades at the end like uh like dragon facades or something like that so they're you know got yeah. their water breathing dragons or something it's cool yeah so that was where that theme sort of presented itself as well as other areas but i re i think you know in mentioning my two favorite scenes action scenes specifically it'd probably be those two it'd be the the scene where they save the kid and they introduce also just because again it's 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 so adorable the bromance that they have immediately after right. that culminates uh, from yeah. that initial scene that obviously carries throughout the entire film is a large part of the charm and then yeah just that whole uh, sequence with the animals unleashed and again the fire versus water aspects also like you know him going full like god of war kratos with this chain and like grabbing concrete pillars yeah. and like ripping them out of the ground and chucking them at raju dude right. like again like there's just there i've talked about it before right like for all of the the analysis that we do and for all of like the deep dives and what was this metaphor and what is the filmmaker saying and all of this like there's also just these films that have elements that speak to the 14 year old boy in us right who loves giant robots or you know banging the crap out of giant buildings and destroying them in huge right. epic fights that are like way larger than life that could never really exist right like these things anything is possible are in this cheesy movie. to a lot of people sure but like i think you know for people like us that can sort of appreciate all manner of film uh, again, you know, this is uh, the, you know, big uh, Spielberg, Hollywood, Michael Bay epic type of thing. But coming to you straight from India, where they also have a very deep compassion and very right. deep sense of moral justice and all of that. And so you get this nice 
stew of all these different ingredients that, you know, if you tried to make it back home, like you couldn't do it, right? You would mess it up because you don't understand how these things work together, these ingredients, right? But uh, then, you know, you go to India, you get the some homemade curry over there and it's like, oh, wow, this is really good. You guys actually know what to do with these ingredients, whereas like this is foreign to me, so I don't, right? Right. Yeah, it's... Yeah. um. It's definitely a cultural thing, but uh, they are not about not. They're not afraid to be a little silly at times too. Like the prison break sure. uh, action sequences when the guy's doing a straight chicken fight on the dude's shoulders and he's got the two <laughs> rifles because his legs don't work. He's been brutally beaten at this point. Um, so yeah. Bemo's like, like get on my shoulders and like... he's just you know doing a full chicken fight Rambo prison escape uh, <laughs> and they're like swapping guns you know. So sometimes Bima has the guns so you know Raja could like hold on to the. Uh, you know, tree and swing across the wall and Bemis shooting people. And then he like chucks the guns up to him so he can like bust a door open. <laughs> Fucking awesome, dude. It's like, yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. I felt like, like a little kid playing with my action figures with my GI Joes and I'm making him do like unrealistic, <laughs> like jumps off the bed and then he jumps in his vehicle and pieces out, <laughs> you know, totally, um, you know, little kid aggro uh, adrenaline rush. That I get watching this, but again, grounded in a lot of vibrant color. I mean, to your point, that Mm -hmm. fire and water scene, beautiful, oversaturated orange lighting on everything. And then you cut to the water and it's all these blue, cool teals. And it's just really gorgeous to watch in the midst of all this hyper violent, you know, action. And then, you know, when they're in the jungle and stuff like the tiger scene, it's all this hyper saturated green. It feels very lush. But then when you're back in uh, Delhi, like where the uh, mob scene is in the opening, very arid and dry and orange. Like you're almost like, like you're thirsty. You're like, oh, my mouth is so parched. <laughs> but then you're in the lush, you're the next scene, you're in the lush jungle jungle, and you're like, ah, like Mowgli and, and Baloo the bear just going down the river. Everything's fine, you know? <laughs> so visually speaking, I think that, uh, man, they, they whooped ass on this. They, they were able to tell a lot narratively just by the colors they were using on the color wheel. Yeah, absolutely. So narratively, shortly thereafter, we learn that Akhtar is posing as a mechanic, a very modest guy, while Raju is offered the prize of being promoted to special officer if he can find the person they're referring to as the shepherd uh, who is looking for the young girl, Molly, that they have kidnapped, or Mali. I'm not sure exactly how you pronounce that, but he poses as a revolutionary to gain some information, ends up leading him to the town where Akhtar is hiding, and that's where we get the sequence where... The train ends up exploding on this raised track. It surrounds this kid who's below on the water. You know, Raju waves to him from the bridge to get his attention. Akhtar, you know, returns it. He's like, hey, buddy, yeah, I got you. Jumps on his motorcycle, meets him. And that's where the two devise this plan to save the boy. And, you know, they get the, they tie themselves to the ropes. Uh, They both book it the other way, one on his motorcycle, the other on his horse, jump over the side of the freeway. And then the cool thing is, to your point, because these action sequences are like little stories, um, I did actually go back on YouTube and watch this sequence again just to brush up for this review. And yeah, there was a couple little things I noticed, like when uh Raju is is sweeping down and he has the flag he like unfurls it and like drags it on the water right so that when he like throws it to a beam and beam wraps himself in it to go through the flames like that's where that protection is coming from right because it's been like soaked in water and there's right this is a little touched you know at first I thought it was just like the waving the flag for a visual element right because it just looks cool like with him you know going forward and in the background but yeah it actually has like a 
a reason for doing that aside from just looking cool. And so there's a lot of little elements like that that you'll notice in these action scenes as you sort of go back and rewatch them. So the fact that you're saying that he treats them like these little sort of three act mini stories, it makes perfect sense, you know? Right. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. He busts out of that flame, Bima does. Uh, like Michael Jackson from the black or white video. I don't know if you remember that, but uh, he just <laughs> yeah. like comes out like, rah, ready to go. <laughs> I was like, whoa, <laughs> he's back, baby. <laughs> and then he beats the shit out of a car for no reason at all. Yeah. <laughs> and everyone's yeah, right. very confused. <laughs> <laughs> he hates yeah, his that, car. So... He hates these cans. <laughs> he hates his car, but he also kind of wants to bang it with his pseudo-sexual moves. A little bit. I'm not sure what's going on here. A little bit. A little yeah. titany at this point. <laughs> but yeah, so then after that, you know, we get this immediate sequence of the two men running towards each other underwater. They sing and we hear this very earnest song about friendship. It's very sweet. Like I said, kind of uh, almost these jaunty tunes about like how much these dudes like two dudes just love each other even more so than like uh what was it? Uh, Serious Weight or whatever the, the film with Nick Cage and Pedro Pascal that none of us can ever remember the title to. Right. Yeah. I always want to call it The Unbearable Lightness of Being, which is obviously a very different movie. I always want to call um, it The Unsurmountable Weight of Massive Talent, but it's not. It's The Unbearable <laughs> Weight of Massive the Talent. The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. That's right. the one. Yeah, not I don't know why overcomplicated. Unbearable, unbearable is way easier to say than insurmountable. Well, I don't know <laughs> why I go there, but here we are. Yeah, so uh, I would say that this bromance even outdoes the two of theirs, which it is even a outdoes romance. the two of ours, Jason. Aw, I don't know about that. I don't know. I think we'll give him a run for his money. I think we need a dance-off to decide There's only one way. (laughs) Yes, we need to do a full-blown dance-off or just take our shirts off and lock arms, you know, just get in there. Now, now here's the thing. I, I, I can't do like very stylized, uh, sort of like synchronized Indian dancing. What I can do is flail my arms and legs wildly to EDM house music. So that is going to be what I am going to propose okay. is we all dance individually, much like the lobster, right? <laughs> like, where they're like, oh, yeah, no, we just all put on headphones in the forest and dance individually to EDM. Like, that's going to be what I'm going to do. But I'm going to dance the hell out of that floor. So EDM dance off coming to you. You heard it here first. That's how we like to do things. Around I'm excited. Here. I, for one, am very <laughs> excited about this. I cannot wait. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, we've talked about it before, but obviously, you know, this is this is a huge, huge part of the charm of the film is these two guys and their relationship and their blossoming bromance over the course of the film and how, uh, you know, wrecked they are when they find out uh, that each other is sort of working for the other side, or at least they think they do. So I would imagine that was a large part of the charm for you as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And then after that, you know, we have this love interest for Beam. Uh, She's sort of introduced previously, but she comes back. Her name is Jenny and she's part of a royal family, but she's like the kind one. Right. There's always like one good one in the evil family. Right. So that our protagonist can fall in love with them. And that's exactly what we have here, you know. Um, And uh, so, you know, a little bit of a Cinderella again in keeping with the whole Disney theme. Right. Like evil family. But there's uh, the good one, you know, so. And we notice that she's driving. Raju comes up with this scheme to sort of get him together with Beam. 
And he does, but they also don't speak the same language, Jenny and Beam, so they can't really truly communicate with one another. But there's obviously an instant attraction, and then that inability to openly communicate does lead to some sort of charming, you know, meet-cute moments, uh, if you will. So, <laughs> yes. um, you know, we, we get a little bit of that. Uh, again, this sort of very innocent, you know, the, the romance itself is very pure, right? It's one of those love at first sight, and they both just really dig each other, even though they have no business doing so. And so it sort of keeps in line with the overall feeling and aesthetic of the film. But then he quickly comes to find out that she is uh, buying stuff for Mali, that it, you know, the, Correct, the girl yeah. that he's looking for. So she, the, this uh, young girl is being kept in the palace um, where his love interest resides. So it's kind of now this, uh, you know, what do I do uh, kind of situation where... You know, I want to be with this girl. I really like her. She's very kind and sweet. But also, um, I need to use her to my own devices to get in there and, and bust this place wide open and wreck her family shit. Yeah. So what do you do? <laughs> Answer is you wreck the family shit. <laughs> as we soon find out. <laughs> yeah. Now, this is where uh, so soon after that, Jenny invites Beam to her house and sets up the very infamous not to not to dance sequence. Which is just great, you know. There's a reason that it won the Academy Award for best uh, for best song, um, you know. And 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 in context of the story, I do appreciate the way where it's like it's set up like a dance sequence, right? It's, it's basically like a ten minute you got served sequence, right? It but is. Like Indian it's a dance style, brawl. You know? It's a dance battle. <laughs> yeah, they're dance battling. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that sort of brings up, you know, another point about this film, which is that dance and music and song, right? This is all part of this film's DNA. We've talked about this before, you know, traditionally speaking, especially out here, we don't get big, huge musical sequences and dance sequences and like action heroes singing these uh, soliloquy type songs of drama and such, you know, so it's uh, it's it's potentially a juxtaposition that you know may not necessarily work for all western audiences like i could definitely see like i could see it going either way if someone was like dude i really i really love that they did that i'd be like cool it makes sense if it was like dude that didn't go together at all i don't know why they did that i'd be like yeah it makes sense right so (laughs) it it worked for us you're either in or you're um, out on this (laughs) yeah but what did you think of the the music and the dance sequences and also are you a musical guy Hit and miss on the musical guy thing. Um, I think yeah. when it works, it works well, but I don't actively seek them out. I'm not like a musical guy, but I don't hate them okay. either. I mean, at the end of the day, I was partially raised on Disney films that were all musicals, you know, love the sure. Jungle Book yeah. and love all the, you know, Disney stuff from my youth. Uh, Muppets, uh, you know, notoriously musical based, um, big Muppet guy. So, you know, musicals at their core are a part of my DNA. So, you know, it's just not every day you see them in a, you know, action film of such scope and size. Um, it felt very weird to see them in this regard. I even like a lot of Baz Luhrmann stuff. I know that's, a you know, kind of a trendy thing to say sometimes, but um, I appreciate what he does. I think that it has its niche, uh, you know, way to uh, approach it and, and, and really love well, it. I'm glad one of us does, Ryan. I know. <laughs> that's fair. It's, it's just so, you know, kind of all its own thing. You know, and then... Uh, uh, I was raised a little sheltered as well. So there were a lot of uh, times in my youth when, you know, uh, family would sit down to watch innocent stuff like The Sound of Music or whatever it is. So, you know, I I was raised on a lot of that uh, in my, my younger days as well. So I could appreciate the musical side of it. But this 
was like you said, approached more like a music battle and uh, had a lot of energy to it. The colors were vibrant. Um, they're enjoying it. You could see the smiles ear to ear, uh, the way they would like, you know, joggle their head a little bit uh, with some swag. Um, and again, uh, you know, kind of going back to the way that Rajamuli approaches some of his action scenes, I feel like in many ways he approached this Natu Natu scene the same way where there was a sure. bad guy yeah. that was, um, you know, uh, bullying uh, Bima. And that was what kind of sparked this whole thing in the first place. Um, then there was kind of a dance off dance battle thing. Uh, and then it became the two of them, uh, Raja and Bima kind of going at it in the end. You have the women that were kind of uh, cheering them on and pushing the bad guys away at times and letting them do their thing, uh, all of that. So um, you, you have, you know, a lot of elements kind of working together harmoniously to make this all work. But uh, yeah, the, the dancing itself was really impressive to watch. They're sure. sliding on their one foot and shit twitching the other. And they're, you know, got their arms going every which way, um, you know, all in unison, you know, coming together like a, uh, one of those flash uh, parties or flat, you know, flash, flash mobs. mobs. Yeah. 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 And I kept watching it and thinking, man, this is like, uh, this is the Humpty dance. Yeah, definitely, dude. I love the, uh, my favorite part of the Natu Natu dance is the suspenders. Yes. Love the, love the suspender dance. Yeah, and Apparently I guess. I was also. Go, go ahead. ahead. It sounds like we both read the same thing about how uh, for, for that sequence specifically, they had to, the costume designer had to give them these very loose suspenders because otherwise they were like too tight to do the dances on. Yeah. So they're like using these like oversized suspenders for that one to make it work. They said it, it stung. They had to like yeah. really keep themselves oh, yeah, wincing when, when they when would she snap them back. Yeah. <laughs> they're like, go. Like, ah. But um, it is worth mentioning that they filmed this sequence at uh, the presidential palace in Kiev, in Ukraine. And yeah. uh, supposedly it was monsoon season in India, so they couldn't film it there. They had mm -hmm. to look for other locations, but they wanted it to look very bright and colorful and um, fitting for uh, the location it was subbing in for. This met all the criteria. Rajamali was like, um, you know, you, you're not really going to give this to me, right? And they're like, yeah, no, come on in. They were very welcoming. They let him film there. You could see Parliament in the background, uh, a lot of things that, if you know, I do not, but if you do know uh, the presidential palace area of Kiev, I guess it's very recognizable. But um, it's really sad that uh, I guess that area no longer exists because of the bombing uh, in the war uh, over uh, there right now. So That's too bad, man. Yeah, right. It's um, very, very different now than it used to be, <laughs> unfortunately. Mm. So um, mm. I, I think you mentioned this earlier in our discussion that... Uh, it's it's kind of like seeing the World Trade Center in a lot of old movies with New York and stuff where it's like yeah, a mm -hmm. little reminiscent, never forget kind of thing. So, yeah. Yeah. Very interesting, man. Well, and so the next sequence is a turning point for the story as well, because we've got Raju and he's interrogating one of the friends of Akhtar. And uh, this man ends up grabbing a poisonous snake and launches it at Raju. The snake bites him and he's, you know, going dizzy. Uh, he does cut the rope of the guy and allows him. He says, like, it'll take you a day to get out of these ropes. So he's not going to let him die. But he is stumbling around trying to maintain consciousness, ends up finding Beam in the middle of the streets as the venom is spreading. And uh, Beam notices that it's him is able to come up with and administer an antidote from some stuff that they find around and then takes him home to rest. And this is where Beam finally tells Raju exactly who he is and of his plan to save Molly and all of this. And obviously the realization of Raju is very intense, but he's also suffering from 
venom poison uh, from being poisoned. So he can't really do too much about it. And Beam runs off to go, you know, get ready to do this big thing at the party and save Molly. And then later we get the scene where, you know, we see that uh, Raju has regained his consciousness. And so he's, you know, unleashing his anger on this punching bag and as I'm knocking the punching bag off of like the, the thing. And then basically just like bloodies his knuckles, punching holes in the, in the walls, just dealing with all of this emotion. And again, you know, reinforcing that bromance aspect that we've talked about the relationship between these two guys and how much they mean to one another. And so, right. you know, uh, I guess, Especially using this scene to kind of illustrate this point, one of the aspects about the story overall is how much it leans into melodrama, you know? Sure. It is a very melodramatic story. It's very over the top. It's very, like a lot of these plot lines could be at home in, you know, a soap opera back here, like The Bold and the Beautiful or something like that, you know? <laughs> um, <laughs> where it's like, he was my brother, but now he's defected to the other side. And it's like, wait, has he really? No, he didn't, right? Like, so there's a lot of little things like that. We've got these very sort of like, over like I would I would almost call them like overwrought emotions very like Oliver Stone type of like more drama give me more drama I said more <laughs> right like so everything's very effusive in that respect and again like sometimes you know that's not necessarily always it doesn't always lend itself to you know the most serious films and not that this film is always serious but um I was just wondering if you know, as somebody who's maybe not always prone to melodramatic stories, like, uh, did, did any of, like, were you engaged in it? Did it work for you All on this the time. one? It sounds like it did. Yes. Yeah. This always works I'm trying to figure out, like, what it is about this film. Like, why is it that this film can get away with certain things that, again, like, a Michael Bay film couldn't? Because, like, its DNA is very similar to a lot of these films that have sort of been maligned over the years. Sure. Um, but again, there's 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 a quality of it. And as I think about it, I think it's just that, again, it's not any sort of manufactured thing. You know, I think this is a very earnest storytelling and very earnest filmmaking from um, also a very genuine and earnest dude. You know, Rajamuli seems like he's a super good guy, um, you know, and all of the things that you see behind the scenes. And just the fact that he's, you know, also such a collaborative filmmaker. Right. Like he talked right. about how on the final part of the not to not to dance sequence uh, where they sort of like show everything overhead you see like and it's where they all sort of get in this like almost like a like a like a metal pit of like dancing right where everyone's sort of circling each other and he talked about how like he really wanted to do that entire sequence as a oneer, as just like a one shot right and just have it like going un un uninterrupted the entire time but his editor like really pushed back on it and basically was like, look, dude, we've created this aesthetic. Like you can't get away with putting a one in this type of film that has so many edits and so much constant stimulation going on. Right. So, yeah. and, and rather than be like, dude, you know what? Fuck you. I'm Raja Mooley. You'll do what I say, which he very easily could have done. He didn't. He was like, okay, you know what? You're right. And then when he talked about it, he was like, yeah, you know, I wanted it this way, but sometimes you got to like defer to your technicians. Yeah. And I just thought like that's so cool because it shows such respect, you know, for the contributions of other people. And I'm sure that by doing that and by treating people that way, he's getting the best out of all of these people. And that is, you you know, that's what comes about. I think that's what makes this film work is like it's genuine to itself. Right. 
And it's, again, it's a movie from a, a very well-respected and talented filmmaker who one of his top 10 films of all time is Kung Fu Panda. Right? <laughs> like, there's just a certain DNA your films are going to have if you're that type of guy. Yeah. Paul Thomas Anderson, that film is not on his list. Right. Stanley Kubrick, not on his list, right? Raja Mooley, absolutely. And so I think that's what makes all of it work is it's genuine. It's not trying to be anything that it's not. And I think that we can understand that, right? It's like meeting someone who's like, very uh, unorthodox, right? Has a weird energy, but it's like not a manufactured persona. It's just legit who they are and how they are. And once you accept that, you're like, oh, this guy's, you know, pretty cool. Sure. Uh, let me go ahead and unwind this for a second because I think that to me, what makes those moments work, the melodramatic moments, is that he has already anchored from scene one. When you're in the jungle and Molly gets stripped from her, her community, um, mm. From scene one, he's already anchored this with how bad the bad is. So yeah. you're walking into these character arcs with a lot of empathy um, and understanding of what it is they're up against so that you're able to take a minute to grieve or feel for these people in these uh, sentimental moments. Um, I'll give you an example. So to me, the Michael Bay Transformers movies, they're looking for the the all-spark or something completely unrelatable that's just this like made up MacGuffin or unobtainium mm -hmm. on fucking Avatar or whatever. And you get to see, Which, by the way, is a real thing. Just oh, want to say God, it's actually a real thing. All right. Well, th then call it obtainium. Um, so <laughs> they do. It's literally called that. It is. That is not made up. That is actually a thing in science. No, but go on. But in the movie, it's called unobtainium. So then if it's obtainable, call it <laughs> fucking obtainium. So in, but in Bumblebee, for example, they ground that with a lot of heart in the teenage world and all of mm. that. So I think that through okay. Bumblebee, they show a lot of emotion expressed by that transformer, as silly of a conversation as this is, I'm I'm actually just realizing as I'm walking. No, no, no! This, how stupid this is! No, you're no. This is absolutely right. Like that's like a Hollywood film. Like that's what we're talking about. Yeah, it's. I think that if Michael Bay um, set up more of an emotional anchor to ground those characters instead of it just being a a drug dealer in Miami, um, you know, for bad boys or something like that. Uh, if if he anchored it more because, you know, you're seeing torture, you're seeing, like you said, the the whipping scene that's coming up here shortly with Bima when he yeah. goes on the platform. Um, these bad guys played by, by the way, very well by um, uh, Allison Duty and Ray Stevenson. Um, Allison Duty, as silly as a name as that is, uh, to say out loud, <laughs> Duty. I was going to say, how have you not made a Duty joke already? Uh, it's coming. Yeah, like there it is. I just right laid it there. <laughs> it's laid bare. There <laughs> it is. That's like your humor. Like, yep. uh, just serve it up. <laughs> Allison Duty. Um, yeah, Duty. <laughs> <laughs> she uh, famously played Ilsa in um, Indiana Jones in The Last Crusade with Sean Connery, the Sean Connery mm. one, the third one. So um, the Nazi chick, the blonde chick. So. Uh, yeah, they're made so villainous and you're able to see what these people are going through that I think that in the heroic moments, you're able to take those emotional beats of, of feeling and just their bromance. Like you said, they're so freaking lovable yeah, that when yeah. they take moments to <laughs> grieve, they're uh, turning on each other and stuff like that. And like their love for each other, I think shines through all of it as well. And it's all in how you address it from the very start. These people are passionate people. Everything they do is they're putting their whole ass into. They're not half-assing anything, whether it's, you know, getting the lion 
or, you know, going after Molly or, you know, all the sacrifices we find that Raja has made. We haven't even discussed that yet when they start going into his backstory and a lot of the, which is why this film is three hours because we keep doing a lot of these backtracking moments to kind of, oh, but look at this. And what you didn't know Mm -hmm. is, (laughs) so when you start to fill in those gaps as well, it gives it even more emotional gravitas to where it's like, Oh shit, this guy, um, he's really invested. He's wait. They, they say that he's invested 15 years into getting these guns for his tribe to get revenge for same fucking guy, Ray Stevenson's turd ass, uh, to go after him because he's like, this bullet isn't worth, you know, the blood, uh, you know, it costs a pound just to get here because we had to ship it all the way, you know, blah, 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 FedEx and the prices and inflation. So, um, yeah, by the end you're like, freak fucking fuck these turds and you're you're able to take those emotional beats where i think that someone like michael bay um you know never takes that time to really get you emotionally grounded because that's not what he's after that's not the story he's trying to tell in his defense he's able to be the action movie guy that he wants to be um but that's not that's not who raja muli raja muli is making a rated r hard r kung fu panda (laughs) <laughs> and that's what we have here on full display. If you ever wondered what that looked like, um, you know, I don't, I don't think this is a hard R. I would say it's a hard PG 13 or a soft R. I okay. Mean, there's no, like I said, you know, all there's no, we don't get any sort of assaults or a know, rated R assaults or then a rated like R Kung Fu Panda. Yeah. And, th- and even, even the blood is like, yeah, it's not that bad, but I also understand that this is largely because um, India has very strong, uh, cultural okay restrictions around what can be presented. That's on, fair. Yeah, so like so most films will actually have like an Indian cut where okay. a lot of stuff that might be showed elsewhere is removed. Yeah, um, it is very very strict about what you can and can't show. So yeah. I'm sure that factors into it. Indian Indian and saw not- is like ten minutes long. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Now, soon after this, we get another giant action centerpiece. We referred to it before. This is where Beam and friends ram their truck through the doors of the giant party at the governor's mansion. Unleash no less than like a dozen animals. It's absolute mayhem all over the place. We're seeing guys getting impaled by deers. We get the awesome fight that we spoke to earlier, you know, with the fire and ice and the, the Kratos chains and all that sort of stuff. Really, really awesome the way that they explore the environment. I think that's like really the when you when you talk about like really strong action directors, I think more than anything else, the quality that that they imbue in their films are the they explore environment in the in in the context of their action scenes. So I'm thinking of like John Woo. I'm thinking of like Raja Muli here, right? Like right. you know, if you consider Hard Target, not the Hard Target's like this great movie, right? But if you look at the end of it, like the whole shootout in the warehouse sequence, like it's constantly like, hey, how can we use this environment? James Cameron does the same thing, right? So if there's chains hanging, let's get our guy, you know, hanging off of it and swooping through. And then if we've got barrels of oil, you know, let's make sure that he, you know, when he's gonna shoot the one guy, he actually turns and shoots the barrel and explodes behind him, right? Like so the way that he he is able to explore the environment. I as love well. that you say that again. Yeah. Yeah. You know, again, uh, you know, the fountain busts open and then the water hoses become this Shiva Hydra thing. Right. Like that's awesome. That's exploring your environment. I'll give right? you one ready for yeah. this. Go for it. Yeah. I have it in my notes. This reminds me of dead alive. It's every reason that we Absolutely. said we there loved <laughs> those action sequences in 100%. dead alive because everything that they'll show you something. And then like 
three, four, five minutes later down the road, like it's doing something that impacts this. That's like you said, the, the deer antlers, like the one dude's like, you know, got his, um, he locks the key to the thing and then he puts the key in his wrist, little, you know, gimmick to hide the key. Yeah. And then all of a sudden now that becomes the MacGuffin. Like, like I said earlier, here we go into this like little three act structure narrative in the midst of this action sequence. So then, you know, yeah. Bima has to go get that arm. I'm going to get that arm like Ra- rocket raccoon and guardians of the galaxy. So he goes and gets <laughs> that arm and then sure as shit, it's like impaled by the fucking deer that we saw. It's like, Oh crap, deer's back. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> there's like, everything is impacting every little thing else. Like, you know, he busts, yeah. that fountain open with his God of War Kratos chains. And then all of a sudden, next thing you know, the, the, the fountain is in play. So that's impacting other things. So um, yeah, everything is kind of chaining along in a very Peter Jackson-esque kind of way. I thought that for all the reasons you and I said we loved Dead Alive and did not like Evil Dead Rise, this is ticking all those boxes. Thoughts on that? Yeah. Yeah, no, 100%, dude. Yeah, kind of, in thinking about it now, it's almost like uh, you want it, you want your action scenes to be sort of like a, some sort of cinematic Rube Goldberg yes, type of system, right. right? You know, where it's like this hits that, which triggers that, and yep. leads this guy to do this, which causes this. Like, that's when you get really engaged instead of just, to your point, Evil Dead Rise, which is like, uh, well, let's just have somebody stab somebody, I guess. Right. right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and so, I think it's yeah. what sets a good, you know, we've talked about this from horror, but um, it was really interesting that it was the first time that I ever really thought of it from an action sequence because that's exactly what's kind of good. Mm-hmm. And it's in all the action stuff from, like you said, wait, you know, wetting the flag and, you know, he grabs that flag before he goes over the bridge and it's like, what's he need that flag for? Like, is he just like, yeah. Right. You know, ceremoniously Aaron Rodgering yeah. his way Mother out of the tunnel. Yeah. Like, ah, yeah, right. Yeah. But then no, it actually comes into play very importantly down the road as he wets yeah. it. And that becomes the shield for Bima on the other side of the thing. So there's all these, like you said, Rube Goldberg uh, machine esque, qualities to these action sequences that make it really fun and give it the glue that holds this whole big thing together. Um, because you know, then you're always on the edge of your seat noticing more and, Oh shit, there's that guy again. And you know, you could see stuff happening in the background uh, a lot. Um, it's, it's very rewarding. And it, again, yeah. you asked me at the top of the show, what I thought of the rewatch, it allows you to really appreciate a lot of those moments, especially in an environment of a foreign film where you spend a lot of your time on the first watch reading the subtitles um, and trying to figure out narratively. (laughs) Taking notes was hard with the subtitles, man. Like, it ended up being like a four-hour-plus experience for me just because, like, there were so many times where I had to pause to, like, catch up my notes because I can't just listen and fill in what's going on because I don't understand the language. Oh, thank God the Brits are back. Yeah, very much worth it. (laughs) Yeah, and I was really glad that it was, like, for this movie because, like, you know, if I have to do that for another film that I'm not as into, like, all of a sudden becomes a huge, huge chore, whereas now it's like I was, you know, more than happy to do so no it rewards you for it and and um yeah yeah, i i just uh i think that's when you watch it again now you could kind of forego a lot of that because it's it's not super complex uh what's going on once you know the beginning middle and end so then you can focus on more of the action and the cinematography and and some of these sequences and how they play out it's really cool yeah definitely and you know the one thing about this sequence though is i will say it's probably because of the animals right because it's all the animals in one sequence mm-hmm. it's probably the heaviest cgi of any sequence yeah. especially when you add in the fire uh, you add in the fountains and all this stuff that we talked about so right. now there's something that i'd like to discuss with you that's kind of along the same lines of what we've been discussing here which is like why does this work for this film or maybe it doesn't always work for others so one thing that we are as cinema viewers is famously very 
pro practical effects, right? Sure. And even though you said that they tried to do as many practical effects as they can, uh, when, just by design, there's only so much you can do here, especially if you've made the commitment to not use live animals and only do CGI with so many animals in this film. So, right. you know, uh, CGI can be something of a bad word. We we've, we've we've discussed that. We've actually mentioned it as such. And also, CGI has a tendency to not necessarily age as well. Right. So I guess two-part question is, first, why do you think that the heavy use of CGI works better in this film than maybe it does in certain other films? And are we also giving it a pass because of the nature of the production and budget and all of that? I think that's a fair question to ask. Um, but then also, do you think this film ages well? In 20 years, is it still watchable? Because special effects have Oof. come so much further now. Um. I'm going to say, to answer your first question, um, maybe because the film itself, even though it's dealing with some very heavy-handed emotional beats and uh, political issues and social commentary and a lot of those things, and you're emotionally invested, it also counterbalances that with a lot of playfulness, whimsy, unrealistic mm -hmm. stuff going on dude chucks a motorcycle soon um you know straight up <laughs> <laughs> grabs it one hand freaking picks it you know stops it mid motion so when you have those kinds of moments um i think that it excuses some of the cgi that it takes to get you there um i think that's you know it's like you know uh, space jam you know like michael jordan is you know playing basketball with bugs bunny who cares? We're going to have a fun time watching it. But that's it. also cartoons, right? Like we give a we give a pass to cartoons. Like you can watch dude, the Gene Kelly dance sequence from The King and I with Jerry the Mouse. That's yeah. what? 80 years old, 70 years. Like right. still 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 bangs to this day, right? Yeah. But try we try rewatching The Lawnmower Man. Yeah. Which when it came out in 93 or whatever was the absolute pinnacle of special effects. Nothing like this will ever be beat, right? And now you're like <laughs> What is this jabroni ass movie? I'm not watching. This is dumb. I think too. So like, it's like, know, are you enjoying watching the movie or aren't you? Like, I think that this is just correct. such a That's good a movie, it, yeah. and you're so yeah. emotionally invested in the characters that I think that you'll forego some silly animation. I think that that has been one of the yes. chief criticisms of like the Marvel movies, for example. Recently, there's you know infamous uh, Twitter uh, posts all over the place where they just take a still from, you know, completely out of context from the film. And they're like, look at this dumb shit. Can't believe they let this fly. You know, and you watch it and then you start to realize, oh, it's just because it's kind of a hollow story and they just keep going back to the same well that they've gone back to. So you've already seen this resolution for these characters. You're just doing it with a new bad guy of the week. Um, so because of that, uh, you know, uh, now I'm paying, if you're paying it, okay, let me wrap this up in this bow and put a button on it. If you're paying attention to the CGI, <laughs> I would say the storyteller isn't doing his job properly all the time. That doesn't always sure. apply. That's not yeah. a hard, hard line rule across the board. But I think a majority of the time, if you're in it, you're in it. If you're having a good time, you're having a good time. We talked about, um, you know, dead alive or brain dead, super hokey visual effects. Yeah. They're practical. They're not CGI, <laughs> but it's super cheesy. There's a one, there's one time where there's just like a little person in a costume, like wearing a helmet for the baby, you know, yeah, the baby changes sizes multiple yeah. times over the course super of the movie schlocky. because it's a doll in one shot and a dude in another, the right? mom like... coming out at the end and her <laughs> chest opens up and the whole thing, but you're on board because you're having a good time yeah. and you're invested in the story. Mm -hmm. So you don't really question those moments. Um, 
you know, and I think that this will hold up because of the same, I think that at its heart and I'll, I'll, I'll take it one step further. And if you think that, uh, you know, right before this movie was made, he made, um, Bahubali one and two, uh, which are his, th- that was supposed to be his big epic opus. And it is more, uh, set in, an, in more of an ancient time of India. And, mm. uh, it's a period piece, if you will. And, the CGI there, um, even though it's very good CGI, does look a little dated at times. He uses more of it in that movie than he does in this movie. And um, oh, wow. because, again, it's a period piece. So he's got to create these huge ancient temples mm, and yeah. pyramids and like all this craziness and, you know, gigantic. And because it's Rajamuli, everything's larger than life because, of course. So if they're going to put up a golden statue of the king, it's going to be like 100 stories tall, like you know, the empire state building a fucking <laughs> statue. So, um, sure. You know, he creates all that digitally and, but because it's such a fun story, you know, uh, there's a, a moment in, uh, Bahubali one where, um, one of the, uh, competing, one of the bad guys has got this chariot and he's got this like lawnmower blade on the front of it. And it's just mowing people down and it's super <laughs> hokey, but it's so cool to see. <laughs> it's like, dude, I do not care. I'm all 14 in year old it. boy for the win. Right. Yeah. We're all in it for lawnmower chariot guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not to be confused with the Lawnmower Man. Two very different things. Also, Lawnmower yeah. Man. Yes, the cool version. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, no, I, and, and I agree with that. I think that's what it comes down to. We've kind of mentioned this elsewhere on the audio podcast and in discussions where it's like, there are often times where a complaint you'll have in one movie, you'll not have in another movie sure. and vice versa. And at the end of the day, if you take a step back, it's just because you're into one movie and you're not into the other. Right. I, I say all the time, it's like people, right? If you like love somebody, whether it's, you know, your best friend or your partner, wife, husband, whatever it is, right? Like you'll excuse some of their lesser behaviors. Ryan, you famously know I'm late to every damn show that we have ever recorded <laughs> in the history of recordings. Right. And yet I'm sure and you very graciously give me a pass. Right. But I'm sure there's somebody at work who you hate and he's always late. And you're like, dude, fuck that guy. Right. You know, like Steve sucks, man. But it's like if you liked Steve, you'd be like, hey, he's late, but he's a cool guy. But the fact that you don't like him, you're like, this dude's always late. He sucks. Also, he smells right. Like you just and all these things that don't bother you about other people bother you about this person. But it's not the things, it's the person, right? That's right? I think it's the same thing with film. If you're into a film, you're going to excuse lesser production value, some shitty acting, some plot holes, all this sort of stuff, right? Yeah. But if you're not into the film, you're going to use all of that against the film sure. as evidence for why it's not good. And so, to, you know, back to your point, because I think that most people enjoy this film to the degree that they do. You know, people will continue to give it a pass until you get, of course, to like a certain generation that's probably just going to. And you also have to be older. You know, that's kind of the funny thing. It's like I remember being younger and it's like, you know, Planet of the Apes. This is dumb. I'm not watching Planet of the Apes. Those guys are clearly in monkey suits. I'm supposed to like not pretend that this dude's in a monkey suit when he's clearly in a monkey suit. And then, you know, 20 years later, you're like, yes, that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to pretend that he's a monkey. <laughs> right. And you're like, oh, yeah. okay, I could do that. And now it actually turns out this movie's dope. So good for me. In all fairness, though, for its time right now, in this point in history, they did a pretty damn good job with the CGI. Like, it, they did. They it's obviously it. a CGI uh, tiger or whatever, but it's yeah. a pretty damn good one. Like, the detail and all that. And I'll, do, I'll, I'll take it one step further to, to kind of... Uh, emphasize this point is that the speed ramping apparently 
the visual effects yeah. artists say that getting a Zack Snyder on in this film. Yeah. They're doing like <laughs> insane speed ramping and like, so you film all the speed ramping for the, and th- for those who don't know, that's where you start off at one frame rate and one, you know, speed. And then all of a sudden mid mid action move, all of a sudden it'll like slow motion diving at you. And then it like comes back to yeah. uh, full speed again um, to let you just ingest that moment very quickly. Well, when you do that live action, okay, that's fine. That's hard enough as it is. But then you've got to now do that with CGI to match that. So if I'm coming at this yeah. this tiger and all of a sudden now I got to slow down the CGI tiger, that's going to give you a lot more time to really ingest instead of using all the motion smoothing and stuff to kind of like let that tiger just come through the frame real fast. It's like, oh shit, there's a tiger. But yeah. it's like when you slow it down and you see the drool and like the blood coming off its fangs, all of a sudden now you have a moment to be like, that's a fake ass tiger. And if you don't do that, you're either really into the scene or that's a pretty good CGI. And it's also very hard to do that, to animate and motion and, and speed ramp for, I guess for, for uh, you know, something so realistic with all that detail and stuff. Uh, there's no cheats at that point. Everything is laid bare on the screen for everyone to just, you know, mock or, or take a look at and stuff. And that, that can be really harsh to do if it's shitty. So yeah, good on these guys. They did a pretty good job. I, I do think it'll hold up for a while. There probably will come a day where it'll look a little hokey and then you can just appreciate it for, for the narrative and and the fun that it is. I think that there's enough fun, um, and adrenaline involved in some of these moments that it's like, who cares? (laughs) I'm having a good time. (laughs) Absolutely. Now, narratively from there, we do get the flashback to Raju's youth where we learn that he was a young boy who, uh, was actually very precocious when it came to being a soldier, and his father was a rebel leader against the English. Raju demonstrates himself to be this excellent, eager soldier, as well as a supernaturally excellent shot where he's able to uh, just, you know, stare down the bullet of a rifle and shoot from, you know, thousands of yards away a bullseye or whatever it is. This obviously makes his father very pleased, very proud. And then soon after that, we get a scene where the English crown does show up. They attack this village. They end up killing his father. And so that shows us that uh, Raju's motivation has been to avenge his father's death against the crown, as well as to, you know, he's trying to get all of these weapons so that he can empower his village once again, right? And make sure that they can protect themselves. So, and uh, this leads us to the present day where Raju informs his wife, Sita, Sita, I believe, and as well as us, the audience, right through her, that he's undercover collecting these weapons, uh, reveals that whole thing. And after that, you know, he, unfortunately, in keeping up the charade, has to do a, a very uncomfortable for him and certainly for Komaram uh, action, which is to publicly whip him, right? Because uh, he has been labeled a traitor against the crown and they're going to make an example of him. And at first, you know, we're not really sure. It's like, oh, is 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 Raju going to do that? Or at the last minute, is he going to, you know, turn the whip on the governor, right? And no, he actually goes through and he commits to publicly flogging and whipping Beam who then sets up a very, like we mentioned it earlier, but a very emotional sort of ballad that he sings as he is being whipped. And he talks about how, you know, he refuses to kneel before them and the strength of heart and all that, you know, and spirit. And so then the crown ups their ante by, it's not even like a cat of nine tails. It's like a, a, it's like a whip that has like all of these nails injected into it. And so they like wrap it around him and like, 
you know, pull it so that it's like cutting into his arms. They and his demonstrated and on like the pole that's holding him up first to show the damage yeah, that it yeah. does. And it's like gruesome. It's like, holy crap, that's not good. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. And, and uh, like I said, you know, instead, it's funny because I feel like that same scene or that same song like if we were going to do that here like you know in the states it would be like more of like a fiery song right it would be like a you know nothing's gonna make me deal kneel rebel with everything that you have like i feel like it would be much more sort of like a, a violent song right whereas this is a much more emotional sort of ballad song about uh remaining strong yeah uh, but but you know it's inspirational strong and emotionally strong as well you know it's, it's not very this, inspirational like, give him hell at all costs type of thing you know is like the following because he he creates an inspiration he has become an inspiration or, or bigger than himself a larger than life messiah character yeah. now or a martyr of sorts to the the crowds of people that they've gathered in this town square to watch this so that they could beat this dude down to show how weak he is now you know in a very christ-like fashion um, he is, you know, risen above that to become an example of heroism, uh, and, and, you know, how all these common people, uh, because he's just, you know, a common man, uh, any one of them could, could stand up for themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Even so much and as to Raja himself, who now realizes, yeah. um, what, what Bhima is, is capable of and that he is in fact the weapon uh, that the people deserve um, to inspire them versus just giving them guns. Um, you know, it's kind of like give a man a fish, teach a man to fish kind of thing. <laughs> give a man some guns yeah, exactly. or uh, teach a man, you know, to be the gun. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like the, uh, there's a saying among like composers, right. Where it's like musicians play the instrument and the composers play the musicians. Sure. Right. It's that kind of power, right? It's like you can do a lot of damage as one man, you know, out there fighting, but you can do immensely more damage by being someone who can inspire hundreds of other people to go do that very thing, right? Sure. Because now it's just that whole strength and power and numbers aspect of it. Mm -hmm. So now one, you know, one of the remaining topics that we haven't really talked about as we approach the end of the film here is just the cinematography overall. <sighs> Uh, by Senthil Kumar, I believe is how you say that. And, you know, really strong work here. And also interesting to note that this was apparently the very first Indian film that was shot on Arri Alexa cameras and prime lenses. Right. And so that was like a really... Uh, Boy, can you, know, you tell. ...thing for... Yeah. And yeah, again, you can... Yeah, perfectly. Exactly. It looks great. It's really crisp and detailed with the shots. There's a lot of, like you said, like the speed ramps that he does, those Zack Snyder speed ramps. And, you know, he also uh, does a really good job of just, you know, focusing the camera on his actors and really allowing them to do a lot of their work. But uh, what did you think about the uh, cinematography? And is there any other interesting aspects about the production that you noted as far as that? Um, I mean, we've kind of touched along the way on some of the uh, key moments just in that, you know, how they shot a lot of this practically with miniatures and, and got the visual effects design team involved. They were not allowed um, any reshoots, really, because of the budget constraints and how big this movie is versus... I mean, the fact that they shot this on, what was it, like $70 million U.S. Uh, dollars yeah, is like... something like that, yeah. That's incredible how... For three hours worth of this kind of level of content <laughs> and how, uh, you know, insanely aggressive all this stuff is going on and how large scale it all is and all the CGI that's being done. But um, because of the time constraints and stuff like that and, and budget constraints, you know, they're doing um, a lot of previs, uh, pre-visualization uh, ahead of time to make sure that they have everything just right so they could shoot it just right. And it's already moving along into post and, and having it reworked 
you know, with all the visual effects design and stuff like that. So uh, the DP had to be so precise. Like I said, with, I mean, we just talked about this with how these people are interacting with animals. You know, you've got an actual actor yeah. that's wrestling another actor that just got mauled by a huge elk or something like that or a big tiger. It's like, well, that's sure. now in post being, you know, done. The tiger's now being added. So you don't get to go get that again. You either got it in the can or you didn't. So a lot of pressure went into pre-production on this um, for such a large scale deal and especially shooting with uh, the Aerial Alexa large format. Uh, with those prime lenses that are going to, yeah, give you a very much more cinematic look, but also showcase your flaws as well. I mean, just being honest, if you're going to shift to, you know, uh, it's like seeing, it's like when everything shifted to 4K and all of a sudden all these newscasters are like, oh no, my face, you know, (laughs) (laughs) because the second you uh, start, you know, it's like, yeah, 4K is badass, but you know, it also shows a lot of flaws and stuff too. So uh, yeah, you know, that's why this show is in 1080, baby. <laughs> Good old uh, old school high def. Will this hold up? Fuck you if it doesn't. I don't care. Um, <laughs> you ain't seeing this face in 4K. So yeah, um, a lot of a uh, lot of work went into this. I think that it it shows off very well. I will say that yes, the CGI the CGI animals and stuff like that. You could tell. I mean, they're they're CGI, but I do think they did a tremendous job at at blending it. The, the, the real and the not real and the surreal together as good as they sure. possibly could. Um, yeah, I thought it was a fun ride and uh, and the cinematography didn't take take me out of it, you know, whatsoever or, uh, you know. And it just, I will add to that some of the choices for, again, kind of re-harping on this, um, where you place the camera. Um, seeing things mm. from certain people's points of view or low angle or high angle, you know, things like that using, uh, wides to give you the, you know, we talked about this in the, uh, you know, in the, the, the sacking of the city, you know, you always knew where you were. Like, I felt like I always was very well informed in what was happening. You know, when he's showing me the next thing that happened, it's like, you know, in a very dead alive Peter Jackson kind of way, as, as everything is Rube Goldberging its way through this action sequence, I never felt lost or dizzy or any of that, which you could have very easily felt dizzy or disengaged because of how much was happening and all the larger than life shit. It's like, you know, you always have those moments uh, to go back to the wide shot narratively and be like, okay, now we're here. Now we're moving there, you know, whatever. Um, I thought that that was really cool. Uh, Nothing was ever overused. Um, Slow motion could very easily be overused. Speed ramping and all of that. Um, close-ups and drone shots, you know, so often we get caught up in the gimmick of it all that we forgot that these are just tools in our toolbox. And I thought that the DP was very well, uh, informed to use them as such. Um, so they were used just enough and I thought that it was just the right amount of everything. Definitely. Yeah. And you know, with, uh, narratively speaking, we're sort of setting up like, uh, it's almost like a a two-part climax here because, uh, this is where Raju and Beam are finally going to come together, at least publicly, and Raju convinces the crown to execute him by the river, him being Beam, because he convinces them that to do so publicly would make him a martyr, or at least more so than he already is. So they do that, and it sets up this whole scheme where uh, Raju is going to break him free, 
this is uh, also where it sets up the uh, that the governor apparently has some pseudo supernatural physical abilities that we haven't seen before because his car blows up and like he like goes launching out of it, but then like <laughs> comes back down standing on top of it yeah. with his like gun pointed. And, uh, and he's he not a, Ray Stevenson is not a small man either. Like to be able to, <laughs> he's a big he dude. He does not look dexterous. No, right? Yeah, and uh, you know he ends up injuring Raju as as Raju and Molly are able to escape uh, the clown uh, the crown establishes a manhunt for beam who's being harbored by uh sheeta at the time and uh raju ends up getting beaten his legs are severely injured and he's sort of thrown into this solitary confinement and that's when we find out that the crown has announced his execution in two days beam's gonna commit to saving him which he does ends up busting him out putting him on his shoulders and i guess it would be like this is like their equivalent of like three babies in a trench coat kind of thing. Right. It's like there's two jack dudes uh, on each other's shoulders or whatever, uh, going and busting people out. It so. was one of my favorite and- parts of the movie. <laughs> so real quick, um, if it seems like Jason is whizzing through this uh, part, it's because there is probably arguably the most me- narrative meat right here. And so you get through yeah. all the, you know, um, I'm rescuing the girl and the little love story and the bromance and the dance stuff. And then all of a sudden they take this end of the second act, beginning of the third act, I guess you would call it. And then it's like, it just jam packs it full of exposition where it's like, gives you yeah, all yeah. the uh, emotional motivations for specifically the Raja character, but a little bit of everything for everybody and a connect it's a connective tissue thing where it shows like all along these two men have been connected in their mission. Um, you're doing backstory, you're doing exposition dumps, you're doing planning for the, the prison break. Um, and then it all kind of culminates here and this is where we get our resolve. So, um, it, it deserves a quick skim. Um, you know, it also prevents the most of spoiler alert warnings that we could prevent because there's a lot told in these moments with all the backpedaling and, and narrative uh, exposition does. But this is probably, this is one of my favorite scenes, the prison break. And I'll tell you, sure. Jason, did you catch one of the funniest moments in this film? Um, I don't need, I don't know that this was intentional, but the, okay. the whole way that Bima broke his homie out of jail was shaving a haircut. Did you notice this? Oh, with the knocking. And then, like, he resolved. <laughs> yeah. I was like, dude, he just shaved it and haircutted it. I just wa- I was waiting for Roger Rabbit to bust out and go, I was going to say, it worked for Roger Rabbit. <laughs> I loved it That's so much. I was man. hoping he was in one of the other jail cells, especially with uh, finding out Roger Willie is such a cartoon nut. I'm sure he's a fan of that movie. There's no way he can't be a fan of Roger Rabbit. <laughs> it was like 12 on his list. It didn't quite make number he, 10. Dude's in his like 50s, there. I think. So, yeah, I hope that... Uh, <laughs> If you're out there and you're watching this, sir, please go watch Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And if this is an homage to that, we thank you for your service. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And then it sets up our final scene where uh, our two heroes are going to escape through the forest. Uh, they're surrounded by enemy troops. And we get Raju appearing with this bow. Gets to go like full Rambo for his blood. Uh, or maybe it's first blood too that he actually has the, uh, uh, the bow and arrow. But uh, either way, uh, you know, flaming arrows uses it to sort of light the forest on fire. 
Uh, and again, it's just, you know, very over the top mayhem. You know, we've got entire trees lighting up. Grenades are exploding as arrows are flying through the air. You know, we've got Bima and Raju fighting together. Uh, they, you know, oftentimes will do the sort of, you know, jump through the air like Superman headed towards someone to beat them up sort of thing. Uh, there's actually, I really did appreciate the, there's like an awesome tracking shot where it like goes like, it follows the, like these series of explosions that are just going off like one out of the other in like pseudo slow-mo. Yeah. Um, and then to your point, they light Bima's motorcycle on fire. It's like launch it into the building, which causes it to like explode and, you know, uh, get all of this sort of, uh, final resolution, you know? So it's a fittingly large climax to a fittingly large movie. Again, it's very nice and tidy, right? Beam finally is able to kill the governor. Raju gets his weapons to his people. Molly is saved and brought back home. You know, everything gets that, like, final happy ending. And then, of course, you know, because of the film, and I also understand this is not necessarily uncommon for Indian films, uh, we get a final dance sequence to sort of, you know, wrap everything up. Love it. And uh, the difference with this one is that uh, the actress who plays Sheeta is able to dance with uh, our two heroes. Uh, she's very lovely, brings a nice energy to the dance as well. And uh, like I said, you know, just everything wraps up in a nice tight way. And Rajamouli uh, shows way, up. I don't know if you saw that. Should. Yeah. I. So the funny thing is I didn't know that was Rajamouli, but I knew that was Rajamouli, right? Okay. Because like, why else is this random old dude who is not nearly as handsome as anyone else on screen? Like no disrespect, right? But he yep. looks like a director. He looked pretty uh, slick and dapper though. And it's just. Yeah, no, he looked fine. But again, you know, it's like, you know, you can dress up Tarantino or Scorsese, the prettiest they'll ever be. Like, they're not going to look like Brad Pitt or anything no, like right, that, right? Yeah. Like, so, uh, but yeah, so any, it's just kind of these things, you know, like whether you're watching music videos, films, TV, there's just certain times where somebody comes out and they just look a certain way where you're like, I don't know who that is, but I'm pretty sure it's this person or it's like somebody from this department or something, right? right? Um, and then especially when you find out that one of the R's in the film is literally for Raja Mooli, it's Raja Mooli, like, yeah. okay, well, you know, that would make sense to bring the three of them out in the very final shot. And so. then throughout the credits, right, there, there's a bit of an homage to other Indian revolutionaries and stuff like that. They're they're paying respects yeah, to other that was people nice. that have followed these characters. Because, again, even though this is fanfic, this is also loosely based on real people that helped revolutionize yeah. uh, in the Indian people and, and get their independence from the British uh, people. So, um, I think that, uh, yeah, there was a, a really sweet, uh, respect, but it was, you know, the, the credit sequence is also a lot of fun. We're right back in it and we're dancing and it's vibrant colors and everyone's looking hot and sexy and dressing nice and dancing. <laughs> and it's like, dude, this is awesome. I love yeah. this freaking movie so much. <laughs> <laughs> I also, by the way, real quick before we wrap up, I have to say I thought it was hysterical because, like, uh, I've I've kind of only seen this in like animes and like South Park, which is in the final end sequence, the music they have like the 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 singers like singing about. Komaram and Raju in oh, yeah. like, this very epic way. So it's like Komaram through the jungle or whatever like the fucking words make out to, right? But like you'll just literally hear like Komaram and Raju, right? And it's like you're watching them and you're hearing them and it's almost in that like opera sort of way, the same way that the other dance and musical numbers are, right? Where it's like they're telling you about the story through the music. Sure. It's not just like some sort of like needle drop moment. Right. So and that's what um, I was saying. It's kind of like, almost like a, a Greek chorus kind 
kind of thing. Like um, yeah, Little yeah. Shop of Horrors. Like the the the, the three women that come out and they're, <laughs> they're you know, Badu, and they're talking about Audrey too, and you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> uh, but yeah, so uh, I really like that. But yeah, so you know, uh really, really wonderful film. Um and of course we have reached the end of the film where we are going to wrap up as we do with all of our episodes and all of our film reviews with a little feature that we call three adjectives. While you could probably figure out what exactly that means for yourself, I'm going to toss to my boy Ryan to give you a quick breakdown. But first, before I do really just want to remind you, if you haven't, please like, and subscribe as well. Let us know what you thought about this review. Let us know what you thought about RRR. Drop the stuff in the comments below and we will go ahead and get back to you. But Ryan, go ahead and explain to our audience what three adjectives is, and then go ahead and kick us off. This is, if your friend, if you watch this movie and your friend asks you very quickly uh, to summarize it in a quick little line or a word or two, um, like, how was the movie? And then the first thing out of your mouth is what this is. So these are our three adjectives. And I'll give you a very good example. My first one is art house aggro. Uh, this is if a 24 <laughs> made Rambo. Um, this is so cool. It's so, uh, like nothing you've ever seen before. It's a lot of fun to watch, uh, but it has all the intensity and aggression of a big Hollywood, big budget action film. My next one is carnival, uh, because I think this has a little bit of everything. You can go see the animals. You can get some cotton candy. You can go see the freak show. Um, and it all is streaming on Netflix. So it's very affordable, just like a carnival. Um, and then my last one is gateway drug, uh, because this is a good entry level movie. (laughs) If you've never seen like Jason or, uh, once not too long ago myself, if you've never seen a, um, Bollywood or Tollywood movie, uh, this is a great entry level way to get into that. Uh, I think it's got a little bit of something for everybody minus some of the, uh, you know, there is some hard to watch scenes to Jason's point. It's not so overly, graphic that it's you know impossible to watch um it's just kind of cringe worthy because they're really driving those emotional beats home but um aside from those moments uh, i think you could introduce this to anybody i think this is a great gateway drug not only for this particular culture um, but just foreign films in general if you're not a foreign film person if you're one of those people that are like i don't want to read my movies um this is a great entryway to get into that the dialogue isn't so you know heavy-handed that you've got to read every line you get the gist um, there are a lot of British English speaking people in it. So there's, it's only really half foreign, uh, dialects. So, um, you know, if you're Western and, and, uh, want to get into some foreign films, it's a great way to do it. It is a little long, but other than that, they make it a lot of fun and they move it right along. It, it's a three hour movie that doesn't feel like a three hour movie, uh, which is right up yeah. my alley as Jason knows. So, uh, Jason, <laughs> how about you, buddy? What are your three adjectives for today? All right. So for my three adjectives, my first is kinetically vibrant, right? It's just a feast for the eyes. It moves along super quick. Uh, You know, they're not afraid to like up that saturation. They're not afraid to just visually throw everything in the kitchen sink, as they say at you. Uh, I also have that it's disarmingly earnest. I like did not expect for this film to be as sweet as it was. And I didn't expect to respond as strongly to the relationship of the two of them as I did. I think a large, a huge, huge part of the appreciation that I have for the film stems from the nature of their relationship, which could very easily have been ham-fisted and overwrought. But like I said, I think because it seems like it's a very genuine emotion that's being explored here from a very genuine person, it does work. 
And then my final is relentlessly engaging because to your point, this is a 187 minute movie. Uh, I should that turned into 236 minutes with my note taking. Right. I should have been <laughs> over this film when it was done. Right. right. I should have just even halfway through, dude, like there sometimes there's a 90 minute movie that we watch. That's just atrocious. And it's like halfway through 45 minutes. You're like, dude, it feels like three hours. Right. Like this is the other way. This is like the, that three hour movie that only feels like it's like half that. So sure. Super, super cool. Very pleased with that. So going to wrap this up. By giving our star rating, we do a star rating out of five. And Ryan, I will go ahead and let you go first. Man, you already know. I'm giving this one five stars. This is awesome. I love this <laughs> movie course. so much. Yeah. Um, could you nitpick and say, oh, the CGI or this and that? Sure. Of course you can. Uh, but this is awesome. I'm giving this five. I would watch this again right now. Like, if yeah. anybody comes over to my house and says, dude, you want to watch RRR? I haven't seen it. I'll be like, Whoa, yeah, we're watching that. Uh, put that right <laughs> on right now. So I cannot wait to see what uh, SS Rajamuli goes on to make next. Um, but yeah. Oh, and by the way, if you, uh, before I toss it back to Jason for his star rating, uh, if you do like this movie, I did a review on the uh, Bahubali saga, parts one and two. They are three hours a piece. So it's a six hour total movie. Holy crap, is it good? It's a, it's a lot of fun. It stars uh, action uh, star over there, Prabhas. He kills it. Uh, so this is that is the next step I would recommend our viewers. If you did watch this movie, you want to know, well, I like that movie. What should I watch next? Just stick with what you know. Stick with uh, SS Rajamuli and just start backpedaling through that. Um, and then go to the actors because India is very much on an actor-based system where... Um, the actors kind of call the shots over there like they kind of used to back in the day. So if you like Prabhas in this movie, you'll probably like him in this movie as well. Kind of one of those type deals, uh, like watching Jackie Chan. Mm -hmm. Oh, I like Jackie Chan. Well, you're probably going to like three or four of his other movies too. So I'm um, just kind of go back. But Bahubali 1 and 2, go check that out. I would highly recommend those. Jason, what's your star rating for today? Out of five, I'm giving this one four and a half, man. Really, really liked awesome. it. Um, yeah, like I said, this is not a movie that, uh, you know, on paper is up my alley sure. and I really, really enjoyed it. Um, I do think that because, you know, this is my first experience to Indian cinema, mm -hmm. um, that could change. It might go up, it might go down on a second sure. viewing. Uh, I probably imagine it would stay the same or go up, but, um, yeah, really, really loved this movie, man. Uh, want to definitely show it to a number of people that haven't seen Indian films and, yeah, so it, it was it was absolutely perfect for what it was. Uh, four and a half out of five stars from me. Five stars out of five from Ryan. Great film. Do check out RRR if you haven't yet. Now, with that, uh, having wrapped up our review, we do have sort of one additional feature that we do at the end of every episode. And that is where we select next week's film. Now, we actually don't select our films on just some sort of, uh, you know, superfluous basis or anything like that. Uh, we basically are very indecisive people. There are hundreds of thousands of films out there that we want to watch. And we were like, what can we do to make this easier on us to figure out? So we actually put together a list and we call it our master list. The master and list. At the end, uh, <laughs> and at the beginning of every season, uh, we put 200 films on there. Uh, and then the films we watch come off the list, they get replaced for the next season, and it's just this ongoing list, right? So, and then what we do is at the end of every episode, we will consult our random number generator from random.org. That's our sponsor, our unofficial sponsor of Esoterica Cinema. And yeah, we just let the wheel of fate decide what film we are going to watch for the next uh, week or two. So... 
Um, it's always exciting for us. We never really know what films we're going to get. Uh, if you do want to see the list, you can go ahead and go to our website, esotericacinema.com. It will feature the list on there with all 200 films. And so we're going to go ahead and pull those up right now. And we're also going to come here to random.org and select our number one through 200. So as the wheel of fate spins and spins and spins, it lands on film number 40. That's right. Number 40 on the master list. Oh, wow. Of Esoterica Cinema Films. And as Hell we yeah. look at that, we see that, oh, it's a it's a heavy hitter indeed from uh, a gentleman that we have uh, looked at once on this program before in audio format when we did Paths of Glory in season one. We are going to be looking at Stanley Kubrick's Dr. Strangelove, the all-time World War II I'm so excited. Film. Yeah, I haven't seen this movie <laughs> in years and years. I'm, that's why I think it's on here is because uh, I think both of us deserve to rewatch on this, even though we both yeah. seen it. Um, Google has this described as a film about what could happen if the wrong person pushed the wrong button and it played the situation for laughs. U.S. Air Force General Jack Ripper goes completely insane and sends his bomber wing to destroy the USSR. He thinks the communists are conspiring to pollute the precious bodily fluids of the American people. <laughs> um, this is from 1964, stars everyone from uh, Peter Sellers to George C. Scott to Slim Pickens. James Earl Jones is in this. So, yeah, I'm yep. Really excited to give this a uh, go here. Yeah, yeah, that's going to be a good one, man. So, and you know, Kubrick, he's uh, one of the all time greats. And it's only an hour and a half. Favorite filmmaker. Which is right up my alley. <laughs> <laughs> I told you guys, the man loves a short movie. Love it's it. That's the way it is. Love the brevity. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so um, go ahead and watch Dr. Strangelove when you can ahead of our next episode. Uh, for myself, Jason Peters, and my buddy Ryan Siebold, this has been Esoterica Cinema. Enjoy the movies, guys.